What's up, everybody? This is the Upgrade Chase Winners, and you're listening to the Dark Match Podcast. After this episode, go back and check out the time they had me on. And get to know me a little bit. What a day. You're now listening to the Dark Match Podcast. Let's go live into the studio for this week's episode. So it was a fun little announcement on Saturday while you were at the concert. Yeah, still recovering from that weekend. Yeah, you went two nights in a row. Hell yeah, I don't know buddy. how crazy that is or just jealousy overall on my part. Friday, I think, was the more fun night being row two on the yeah. floor. <laughs> yeah, row two on the floor. For Eric Church. For Eric Church. And I got all the snaps of the free alcohol you guys consumed, so I hate you guys for Dude, that. Dude, it was great. And then you went the second night, too. Second night, absolutely. Was there anything different from the shows? Did yeah. He... No, uh, set list was definitely different. Uh, okay. He changed out a bunch. He did change out a few songs, uh, some that, obviously, some that weren't played Friday night. He played Saturday night. Nice. Uh, there's a, there was a point at the end of the his first set because it was just him so the end of his first set he did uh some people probably won't under know who we're talking about his last song before the intermission was mistress Ning music and then he uh did a medley in the middle of it where he started breaking out other songs yeah i forget I'm blanking on all the ones he did Friday night, but uh, Saturday he had like Elton John in there, uh, started singing Warrant. I think it was, no, not Warrant. No, that's Cherry Pie. Uh, Pour Some Sugar On Me. I forget. Def Leppard. Def Leppard, thank you. Um, Billy Joel, I think, was randomly in there that he ended it. Oh, uh, that sounds entertaining. Oh, it was great. Uh, his, his Cleveland set was uh, it was pretty good. The second night he was he kept forgetting all the lyrics to Rolling Stones, so it was it was pretty good. That is pretty funny. <laughs> I'm sure the crowd kind of took that over. Oh, yeah. Especially when he, he started singing record year, like, on Saturday. Uh, first line of the song, he had to stop and tell the band to restart because he screwed up. Oh, like, God. he started offbeat and completely started messing up. He's just sitting there waving them off. He's laughing. He's like, my bad. And they restarted it. Fantastic. Yeah. I, I got all of your snaps, so it's kind of like I was there anyway. But oh, it was great. I, I interrupted you with the announcement of Saturday night. Oh, dude, I was actually really curious. And when you sent this to me, I'm like, it seemed it seems a Appropriate, but I couldn't believe it at the same time. Well, I, I like the buildup for it because there were a lot of questions. It, even when it was announced, like it, it did come out from the dirt sheet saying right. that he was all it. He was all in, all elite. And he even came out with a statement. He's like, no, like I'm still under contract. Like he, he played into it. He did a yeah. very good job playing into it because I was like, oh, well, maybe he's not. And it was announced on Saturday that. Cody's opponent for Double or Nothing will be his brother, Dustin Rhodes, which I like because we really have never seen this match. That's true. We haven't. We've only seen blips of it during, like, Royal Rumbles and things along that nature. We've never seen a singles match between Goldust and Cody Rhodes. Wasn't there one... Okay, you're right, because wasn't there one when he was... Oh, crap. Stardust? Stardust. I don't remember if there was. Because there was, like, this big build-up for it, and I forget there if maybe there was been? some, like, crap Raw match because of it. Maybe. There, there might have been, but... Let's face it, Stardust really wasn't Cody. It, right. It, it was this character and everything that embodies this character, which but, I... But they tried to play... They were trying to play that back and forth of, you know, at the point of him, like, breaking out of the Stardust character, because then he'd be coming out with, like, half his face painted, and I think that was supposed to be this big buildup of, like, no, the match. No, th- th- the problem was it, it was Cody that was just painting it half in an attempt to get away from it, and they were so right. gung-ho for this character. They were so invested in yeah. this character. 
character that they wouldn't let him do it. And which, which is a shame because that, I think there there would have been a great match for it. Well, and it goes back to their announcement and their, uh, I guess you could say, like post-event interview of All In. Right. When he, he looked at the, he was talking to the entire crowd saying, like, here's people that were told, uh, you're not good enough. You have these individuals that are told, hey, you're not a big name star. Right. You'll never make it to WWE. You're not this. You're not that. And you have this individual in Cody Rhodes that, or Cody as he's known by now, yeah. that it is proving that all these people are big name stars. There's a lot of press, not only behind Double or Nothing, but they just announced another show in July in Jacksonville yeah. that already has a whole bunch of buzz, already a whole lot of matches. And there's one big surprise that was announced. It came out in a video where Brandy Rhodes was actually challenging Allie to, to wrestle in Jacksonville. To then immediately follow it up with a phone call to some unknown person saying, yeah, I'm going to need you on in July in Jacksonville. And just left it there. Who knows who she's talking to, That's who true. they're talking about, who it could potentially or possibly be. There's a lot of rumors out there, but we would love to kind of hear who everyone thinks it would be. But it, it goes to show that, hey, they're not just doing one show a year or two shows a year. They have in just, I guess you could say a few short weeks, you have double or nothing and then not even two months later, we have the event in Jacksonville. I'm excited to see if this is actually going to turn into a TV deal. Yeah. If this is going to result in something. I know their YouTube channel is already beyond any subscription that any superstar really has in WWE for their YouTube channel. I'm taking into account and eliminating the Bella Twins. Right. But they have a huge following already and who knows how quickly those tickets are going to sell in Jacksonville. But mm-hmm. it, it, once again, it, it goes to show Goldust is all elite. But then earlier today... This is Monday. They announced the winners of the librarian challenge. Right. But they didn't do it in a way that you would really expect because it it kind of resulted in a little bit of like a a little bit of a spiff, I guess you could say, between the Young Bucks and then also Cody. Because Cody announced one person. Right. And then the Young Bucks announced a different person. Which the one person that they announced was none other than Peter Avalon. Mm-hmm. So they announced, hey, Peter Avalon is the librarian, the true librarian. But Cody announces that a former NXT superstar who we know as Blue Pants or Leva Bates, mm-hmm. as she's known, is the librarian. I saw that one. So there's two announcements right now for this librarian character, which I'm only assuming that it's going to result in the match between the two of them at Double or Nothing. Yeah. Winner becomes the, the librarian. librarian. In a li- How funny would it be if it's a librarian match or a library match and they're just fighting in a library? They're just surrounding the ring is just like, you know, the, the, cart, the carts of books. And yeah. That, yeah, next thing you know, everyone's, yeah, what do you do? Just hit him with a hit them with a book instead of a chair. Yeah. Phone books, man. That, that was the worst part. Who uses phone books? Who doesn't? That's like the best weapon that there is. Hit I'll give you that. a phone book? <laughs> I'll give like, you that How one. funny I'll would that, that be? Like, how'd you get your ass kicked? Oh, I got beaten with the yellow pages. That's and then, perfect. And the next question is, who still uses the yellow pages? <laughs> yeah, who still uses the... Who who uses any type of, like, phone book or... Right. Like, everything's in your phone. But, any, but anything could be open for that. Yeah. There's a lot of things that could happen, and there's still a lot of names that could potentially come out. And as the days go on we get closer and closer and closer they to I, double or nothing i did also see they announced one more for their uh over was it over the budget battle royal yeah mjf yeah so and his twi- if you don't follow him on twitter he is the embodiment of this character over and over i actually heard a story from a friend of mine 
with an encounter that he had with MJF a few months back. And I couldn't help but laugh just because, like, it's hard to, I hate to use that term, but kayfabe, it's hard to decipher between, okay, is this kayfabe? Right. Or is he truly just a dick? (laughs) But I I, I have no idea. And I I love the character. I already showed you what I bought already. Right. It was a bad impulse buy. Yeah, it was. Well, I I have a a pin obsession, I guess you could say. I go a little overboard. A little bit. A little bit, a little <laughs> bit, but they're all cool in its own way. And I bought the MJF, you are my sunshine. So, and who knows during the battle Royal, maybe MJF gets serenaded in the ring to you are my sunshine and opera. <laughs> I don't know. That'd be great. But I, I don't want to touch on too much stuff because we no. have a huge interview today. I'm yeah, we do. I'm extremely excited for it. So not taking anything away. Let's jump right into our interview right now. So we appreciate you taking some time out of your day. So for those individuals that don't know, I've been teasing it all week. I've barely been able to hold in my excitement. I see you, Dave. You are smiling ear to ear right now. I'm excited for this. I am excited for this. And it took every ounce of energy. Every single person was like, who who are you going to have? Because we've been teasing it all week for an entire week. Like even like Chase Winters, our guest last week was like, who who are you, you having on the show? I'm like, I can't tell you, man. I cannot tell you. I'm too excited, but I can't tell you. So I'm excited to announce our guest right now and we welcome him on to the show. We have none other than TJ Perkins. How you doing? How's it going, Patrick, David? My pleasure to come on. What a build up, man. <laughs> I, I, felt I, like I, I, need, I need you guys to be my uh, my private ring introduction, my personal uh, <laughs> We're, we're, we're going to hold you to that. <laughs> we will. We will. I, I will definitely yeah, do it. Need, uh, you guys got to give me the Apollo Creed uh, lineup uh you know when I come out and just <laughs> just keep rolling. Oh, uh, man. oh yeah, from like I think Rocky Three. Yeah, when he's introducing when he's introducing him to come out and just wave to the crowd. Yeah, yeah. Oh man, we should do that. Yeah, just, 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 just the just the uh, the build up to the ring announcements longer than the match itself. <laughs> <laughs> like just list off all of his accolades, like where he's from. Yeah, you guys put me up on the ladder, man. I'm now I'm afraid to be a letdown. <laughs> oh, dude, you are not going to be a letdown whatsoever. We could just end it right now. And just be like, hey, well, thanks for coming on. And it would still be a great interview. Why not? <laughs> but, well, it's, uh, it's my pleasure. And I, you know, thank you very much for inviting me. You know, we appreciate you coming on. And you've already invited us into your home, I guess you could say. So we, we're not going to yeah, touch on that. But <laughs> we're already looking forward to it and booking the trip now. But, but we do appreciate you. I, I know it's after a holiday. You did a little bit of traveling, which you, you alluded to at the beginning. But we want to take a couple steps back. And like we do on every single interview we definitely want to get to know exactly what led you to where you are today and you definitely have a story to tell and i know a lot of people including our fans our followers want to hear this story not only the trials and tribulations that you went through but obviously what happened as well is on a lot of people's minds so just kind of starting things off tell us a little bit about yourself where are you from well i uh, i was born in kansas city missouri my dad is a uh, midwestern country boy we moved out to los angeles when i was a baby uh, to Chatsworth, actually, the valley, home of PWG for anybody uh, that's fans of PWG. We moved about down the street from there. Then we moved uh, a little bit east out of the city uh, towards uh, Riverside, and I grew up there. So I grew up in 
Southern California. I was raised in Southern California. And what was that experience like? Obviously, being right down the street from PWG, was it something that was always readily available to you, being professional wrestling, or was it something that you kind of fell into later on down the road? Well, we moved when I was really young. So, I, mean, I went to school and everything out in Riverside, so I wasn't really in the city much, except for when I was little. And then, you know, when I got older, I'd spend some time out there. But when I started wrestling, this was... I was 13, and I started in it was 1998, and I was just about to start high school. So at the time, you know, in 1998, uh, I, you know, I don't know, like, <laughs> the median age of, you know, people listening or anything like that, but, you know, if you're, like, in your mid to early 20s, to as an exclamation, ni- 1998, like, the internet wasn't really a thing yet, and indie wrestling as we know it isn't wasn't that way. Like, it was almost like the relics of territory days. Like, there were just shows. They didn't really record them. If they did, it was on VHS because DVDs weren't a thing yet. YouTube didn't exist. Google, you know, social media, none of that. So there wasn't a lot of places like, like a PWG or anything like that at the time. Mm-hmm. Now, going back and kind of like you had mentioned, kind of dating yourself as well. So you were you were 13 years old when you got your start. Was there a school within like walking distance of your high school or, or did you have someone that you kind of piggybacked on to get you to wrestling training? Yeah, yeah. I'd have to, I'd have to kind of hitchhike to it in a way. Um, there was no specific person, but uh, when I started, initially I thought, like, I, I always knew I wanted to be a wrestler. Um, I thought everybody wanted to be a wrestler when I grew up. That's just <laughs> how introverted and um, like central-minded I was as far as that goes. There was no other destination for me other than that. I thought it consumed everybody as much as it consumed me. It was, I mean, it was, I, to this day, I'm still like coming to grips with the fact that people don't really mean it all the time when they say they live and breathe it and they love it so much. I mean, people do, but I'll be around peers all the time and they, they really want to turn it off. And I'm like, I, I can't. And I was that way all my life. So when I was younger, I thought everybody wanted to do it. And uh, I figured, you know, you don't know how people do, especially at the time. You didn't really, it's not like you could again, go on the internet and you'd have like friends on social media. So you kind of information didn't travel so fast back then. So I didn't know like how you start. I just kind of knew what I knew from watching interviews and seeing stuff on TV, like, okay, this guy was an athlete, this guy was an amateur wrestler or whatever, so I figured I'd have to do amateur wrestling, and I just kind of assumed the answers would come to me as I go, and I should start there, and that eventually when I graduate, I'll become a pro wrestler, and that'll sort itself out as I go. So when I was starting high school this summer, before my freshman year, I went in and, uh, you know, I asked about their amateur wrestling program, and they didn't have one, they had gotten rid of it uh, years prior. So I didn't know really what to do. So I just kind of started writing letters, um, <laughs> physical letters, you know, with pen and paper and stamps and all that to uh, to these wrestling schools uh, that I would find in like PWI magazine, like the Malenko school, uh, stuff like that. I think Al Snow had one, but they were all in places like Tampa or like Ohio uh, stuff like that. There was all pro wrestling in San Francisco. And so, and I wrote, I think I wrote to Sean Michaels because he was going to start his school. It hadn't opened yet, but they were like advertising this. I wrote for information on that. I think I wrote to the Hart family and stuff like that. But, you know, I'm in Southern California. I'm 13. And, you know, there's really no way for me to do that. I didn't know where it was going to go, even if they responded to me. And at the time, you kind of need, most, they all needed you to be like 18 or 21. So it wasn't like how it is now where it's a little bit more doable because there's a general understanding of it. Um, So, you know, I just kind of took those shots in the dark. But lucky for me, because I live in Southern California, there's a lot of 
uh, Lucha Libre, you know, being so close to the border. And there were a lot of gyms that just, you know, they're just not advertised. They're just in, like, little hole-in-the-wall places. And the Mexican wrestling culture, it's, it's kind of like boxing. Like, if you're old enough to put the gloves on, you know, if you're old enough to get in the ring, they'll teach you they'll teach you how to wrestle and so they gave me a shot and that's how I got started and before I knew it I'm 34 years old and 21 years later I'm talking to you fellas it, it all kind of happened <laughs> real fast so uh, now correct me if I'm you hitchhiked down to Mexico yeah so the way it would work was uh you know I started training when I was 13 I had a, my first couple matches around then and the way it would work is just like my first couple matches I don't remember the dates it was like August of 98, September of 98, around then. And uh, it would just be like guys were getting pickup matches on cards that they, they weren't even booked on. They just knew that they were going to get an extra match out of it, so they were going to bring some extra guys to, to be in the match. So they would bring me because I'd volunteer, and that's how I got started. So then using that as my template, uh, what ended up happening was my routine ended up becoming I would ditch school on a Friday, um, like, I don't know, second or third period before before lunch, and I would have somebody who was going to whatever show I was going to Friday night pick me up outside the school, and we would go to the show, and then in the locker room we'd do the show, and I would say, okay, who's going to, you know, the show in Las Vegas tomorrow or San Diego tomorrow night or wherever? And then somebody would say, oh, we're on that. So I'd say, okay, can I, can I ride with you guys? And I would jump in their car. So we'd go down to wherever, San Francisco or San Diego, wherever the show was, and then say, okay, who's doing Tijuana tomorrow night or the next night? And then I'd jump in that car and we'd go there. And then I would just see who, who was going to be back, like, in L.A. or the Riverside area. And then, you know, can you just drop me off Monday morning so I go back to school? So your parents were completely okay with this. <laughs> Thank you. That was my <laughs> next question. Like, well, my my parents uh, they they were flight attendants. They grew up, uh, or I grew up with them, and uh, they worked for TWA. My mom is still a uh, flight attendant for American Airlines. So my parents were gone weeks at a time. Oh. So I only have one little sister. She's three years younger than me. We mostly kind of learn to fend for ourselves when we were really young you know eight ten years old we could do our own laundry cook food and stuff like that so and we never had curfews my our, my, our parents were super hands-off we we're mostly raised by like our grandmother and stuff like that so you know whenever i would say like go to parties or something in high school like my parents they just they knew that we weren't going to get into any trouble because of the way we were raised so when i started wrestling they didn't they didn't ask or care where i was they just they were used to it already so it just want to make sure, like, you had mentioned how you go down to these shows and you jump into the cars. I have to ask, did you ever get stranded in any of these cities where you didn't have a ride? Uh, I never got stranded completely, but there were a few times where I didn't have a ride. And, uh, I, I mean, I've spent, I've spent overnight in, like, a bus stop or something because I, I ran out of luck and nobody... Uh, Nobody could really come get me. Um, but I, w- I was always able to either find somebody to come get me or find a way to eventually get home or get to where I was going. But, like, I mean, I've spent, uh, I've spent Christmases in airports because I was trying to get standby tickets to go somewhere and got stranded or something like that. I've slept in bus stops, things like that. But, I mean, a lot of wrestlers go through that. But, yeah, I, I, that, that would happen to me. Not yeah. often, but every now and then it would. Yeah, it may happen, but not at 13. <laughs> yeah. 
I, I can only imagine, like, you're at border crossing, like, and here you are, like, the only spot that was available was, like, the trunk of a car. And then here's TJ Perkins, like, popping out, like, here's my passport. Like, I'm good. I'm legal. Like, well, thankfully, I never had to cross the border uh, other than in just the passenger seat. I did have okay, to ditch good. school in the trunk of a car a few times. That was kind of fun. Oh, we've done um, but. But never, uh, never a road trip in the trunk. No. Um, but the worst thing that ever happened, I think, was uh, a lot of times for the border crossing shows that you do Mexicali or Tijuana. You know, you get across the border. A lot of times you park in San Diego and walk across. And um, when you walk across, they'll uh, they usually get picked up in like a van or a bus or something like that. And so there'll be a small group of you that will go to the show and then get dropped back off at the at the town for the border sector, walk back across. Um, one of the times, uh, when we got dropped back off to walk back across the border, it was late at night because it was after the show. So it was like, I don't know, 12, 1 a.m. And then we got dropped off near the border in Tijuana. So we had to walk back across. And on the way to the border check, we got stopped by police. It was three of us. And, uh, you know, the police down there, like, they carry, like, machine guns. Yeah. And so they basically ro- they robbed us at gunpoint. They just sat us on the curb, questioned us as if it was, like, a police, like, safety issue, like we were suspicious or something. But really all they wanted to do was sit us down, dump out our bags, take our money or whatever we had. I think they took <laughs> another wrestler had, like, hydroxy cut and, like, supplements in his bag. They took it. They didn't know what it was. They just thought it would be valuable. But, yeah, they robbed us at gunpoint and sent us on our way. But, I mean, what are we going to say? Because they're stopping us under the... Under the uh, guise of, like, well, we're police and you guys might be suspicious. What are we going to say? You know, so we just went on our way. <laughs> yeah. There was one time where I got stopped when I was in Mexico. And, like, everyone tells me, like, hey, if you get stopped in Mexico by the police, they only want your money. So just offer them money and yeah, they'll let you yeah. go. So that's crazy. Like, yeah, I mean, I, and every time they stop you, it's always, you know, what kind of paperwork do you have? Because they know that you're probably over there for something that you don't need it for, but you, but they know that nobody knows what the laws are. So they ask for it. It sounds official. And then in return, they can expect to get whatever cash you got in returns of just letting you go. So, and that's what I've heard from so many people. They, they just stop you. There's no grounds for it. There's no laws and you just throw them as much money as you can and you go on your merry way. And like, they kind of tell you yeah. to have like a yeah, secondary wallet in a sense. <laughs> Yeah, that's pretty much the deal. I, I would always put my money in my shoe and walk across that way and then take my money out. That's smart. Yeah, that's smart. Uh, I wanted to, I guess, just double back. So you're starting you're starting wrestling here at 13. You're tra- you know, trying to travel down to train and do shows. What was, what was training like at 13, and how long were you training before they threw you into your first match? Oh, I mean, I was probably only training a few weeks, a month or something like that. It was, it was not. Uh, but I mean, I, I didn't get put into a match by the people that were training me. I was just jumping in with uh, other wrestlers who were doing shows that weren't attached to the the place we were training at. But I would train anywhere. I mean, I trained at like four or five different gyms. That's just how it was. Like if if I found out there was another gym that I could get some time in on a day that this place didn't have practice, and I would go to that practice on an off day. I, every single day I was in the ring. So I mean, it was only like a few weeks before I started getting put into stuff. But I mean, I picked up a lot of stuff pretty naturally. Like you get by. I was I was pretty okay at at, at uh, being able to do most things. But uh, yeah, I mean, it was uh, a little rough. I mean, it was still really archaic back then. Um, the world itself wasn't <laughs> wasn't exactly on an advocacy kick. So, you know, like being in with, you know, I'm in there with like 25, 30 year old men, they're grown men and 
they don't care that I'm a kid. So and it just kind of got thrown to the lions and had to survive. So training was pretty rough and people leaned on me pretty hard just because if I think they cared enough to know that they leaned on me hard. If I wasn't meant to do this, I'd be weeded out real fast. If I wasn't meant to do this, then it was going to teach me real fast. So it was kind of sink or swim. Um, but I mean, luckily I got through it. Yeah. And at 13, no less. And just kind of traveling around from there, trying to get your feet wet and just, I guess you could say, make a living at 13 years old, which <laughs> you you definitely had an upbringing that we did not have having two parents that are gone all the time. And when when I did school, like I, I like I, I would go home and take a nap. And here's TJ Perkins who was hitchhiking <laughs> to Mexico to, to wrestle. Right. I mean, you you go back and you look at some of our, our our other interviews as well. I lived a very sheltered life. Apparently, I think we both did. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't experience life. Like I should have. My God. Like. Well, I mean, you know, in, in a way, I this life sheltered me from other things. Like. There's a lot of things socially that I never grew up with. And to this day, I'm still trying to mature because there's a lot of things missing from my childhood. Like, I never went to I never went to school dances. I, I almost didn't go to parties and things like that. Um, you know, so there's a lot of things that, that went missing that kind of mold a lot of people, like, to become more responsible later, and I didn't have that. I didn't go to those either. You didn't miss much. I, I did, and I can tell you, you didn't miss much. <laughs> <laughs> That's what everybody tells me, uh, and I hope I hope so. I take everybody's word for it. Bringing up one story from a school dance, and I know you know this story. Um, one school dance that I went to, I ended up getting peed on. So yeah. No. Oh God, I remember that now. <laughs> I remember that story. David and I both went to high school together, and this, it literally was like the talk. Of, I, I don't. I think we were sophomores. Yeah, I think we were. And it was one guy showed up. Um, Go figure, he's on the sex offender list now. Um, but he ended up running around and he was peeing on people because he was that drunk. So you really didn't miss much from school dances. <laughs> but I actually, I do have a one story. It's funny. I mean, I think it's funny. Um, it's the only dance I ever went to. And it wasn't my school. I went because uh, some people I was friends with from, I went to Catholic school when I was younger. So we had a youth group and I was part of that. And so I had a few friends from there, but they went to other high schools. And uh, a group of them were going to their high school's uh, winter dance. And one of my friends, she needed like, a, you know, a corresponding date. But we were just all going as a group. And I had never gone to anything. So I didn't have like nice clothes or anything like that. So I had to piece together a, an ill-fitting suit from like my dad's closet and um <laughs> and i was uh, i think 16 uh and i didn't have dress shoes nor did i even have black shoes i just had sneakers of different kinds so what i ended up wearing for dress shoes was i wore my wrestling boot because you couldn't see the the boot up you know because your pants are covering covering so it just looks like a really nice black shiny leather shoes and uh and so we went, and I went with my friends again. She's one of my best friends. She actually just passed away last year from uh, from cancer. So oh, I'm sorry. I was reminded of this story. It was, no, it's okay. It's okay. But I was just recently reminded of this. I said, forgot. And so afterward, we went to a friend's house. She's, uh, her family is also Filipino. And uh, everybody left their shoes at the door. And I didn't know what to do. <laughs> so I walked back outside to the car. Down the street, I walked to the car put my shoes in the car and then walked back over this like gravel road in just my socks. Oh, God. And people just were like, what the fuck is wrong with you? What are you doing? <laughs> I didn't want to, I didn't want to put, I didn't want to put these 13 inch wrestling boots down with everybody's dress shoes and heels and look like a weirdo. So I, 
opted to look like a more different weirdo. <laughs> but that's my one and only experience of going to to a dance, and that's that's wrestling. Wrestling screwed me then too. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that's a way to make an impression, though. Oh yeah, it's like a catch twenty two. Like they could either see that I came to a school dance in thirteen inch wrestling boots, or I could be the kid that walks outside barefoot. I'm like, I mean, there's no yeah, there's no explanation for the boots. It's, it's really <laughs> what I what it came down to for me because if they don't watch wrestling, then I just look like like what am I? What is this? What am I wearing? You know, like I. <laughs> So. Yeah, and, and not being in a situation like that, never being a part of that, and you're put into a position where it's like literally you have to make a decision right now. What are you going to do? I, I think I would have took the car as well, just <laughs> yeah. just to avoid the yeah. conversation <laughs> and and being in that atmosphere. It's like okay, well, I don't want to have to explain to people that, especially at 16, that for the last three years I've been leaving school on Friday to go to Mexico uh, to to wrestle and have that that conversation. So. I, I think. Oh yeah, y- yeah you can 100%. laugh about it. And, and I've I've gone I've I, I've gone through airport security having worn my wrestling boots. I can't remember the reasons why, but it's happened more than once. Like either I couldn't pack them or I wore them for some reason. I don't know. Um, and putting your shoes on the metal detector and everybody looked like, why are you wearing boots like that? Like it, that was enough for me to know I'm not I'm not leaving my shoes at this store. No way. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've heard some fun stories about airport security as well, and I'm I'm sure uh, you have tons of fun stories as well. But so you were 16 <laughs> at this point, still wrestling. At, at which point were you able to finally make the transition from driving down to to Mexico to now start taking these bookings all across the U.S.? So let's see. Around around this time, actually, when I was uh, 17, like my last year of high school, I got uh, I was recruited by New Japan. And uh, so it's it's weird because it, it's kind of like I don't know. It, it, I kind of compare it to like the Wizard of Oz in a way because like the world was one way when I started wrestling, and like indie wrestling didn't really exist uh, at least the way that it is now. It wasn't organized. You couldn't find it. It wasn't recorded. You know, the internet wasn't really a thing. Yeah, you and, were like you had to be a tape trader. Yeah, no, exactly. And that's that's how I watched wrestling at that time. You know, which is I mean that would I think it would blow people's minds today if you if you're like 22 years old and you're a wrestling fan it, to to understand what it took to be a fan at that time was it's so weird. Um, but uh, uh, I started around. 15 or 16 at this place called UPW and at the time it was like the one of the first developmental places for WWF at the time um so to to age myself embarrassingly when I started wrestling it would have been a realistic goal to try to go to the WCW cruiserweight division because at the time it was in the world um WWE was still called WWF and they're developmental this is where John Cena and Miz and Victoria came from. And I started wrestling there because a lot of the local guys were able to get in there if they were talented enough and they, they let me train there. Um, I was not anywhere close to being in a position to earn a job or a contract. But because I was really good, they said, you can wrestle on the shows and you could train you know, in the gym and, and everything with us. And so... I was there. So it'd be like getting into NXT as a teenager, but they're not going to give you a real contract. They're just letting you participate. So after a, a couple of years, they split from WWE and then UPW linked up to Japan as their sister link. So that's how I got recruited by New Japan. So New Japan recruited me. I was about 17, just finishing high school. And they set up a, a New Japan dojo in Los Angeles. I would go every day. As soon as I graduated, as soon as I turned 18, 
they gave me a visa contract, sent me to Tokyo, and then I was in New Japan. And I would stay there in between tours and train there. I was a young boy, slept in Chris Benoit's old dorm room, you know, that whole thing. Like, they treated me like, like I was Japanese. And um, when I started coming back to the U.S. after that, they arranged for me to go to Mexico because they have a working agreement with CMLL. So I lived in Mexico City for a year when I was like 18. When I finally got back from Mexico, I didn't have to always live in Japan. I could kind of go back and forth. So I decided then to start really traveling like the country and doing other shows. And then I came back to the U.S. and it was like, this is why I say it's like the Wizard of Oz. It was like everything went from black and white to color. Because I came back and all of a sudden Ring of Honor had started and independence were this huge thing. And the internet was huge now. And there were message boards and social media, like Facebook came up and like MySpace. And there's all this stuff. And I was like, wow, this didn't exist before I got sent out of the country. Now that I'm back in the country, this is what's here. So I was about 18, 19 and... I started doing it around then. I mean, and you made your rounds. It, not only were you in New Japan, you were a, a part of PWG as well. And that's kind of where PWG kind of came into play within that time frame. So you were kind of jumping between New Japan where you're pretty much treated like, I, I hate to use this term, but you weren't really treated as like a green boy or anything like that. Like they really took you into their culture and really showed you their, their worth, I guess you could say. And they really saw value in you and it even put you as a character very similar to Tiger Mask as well and if for those individuals yeah uh, yeah, no when I first went down I I very much was a green boy like or that's how they took me in it like they they trained me as if from the ground up Mm. so full-on young boy I did all the squats swept the floors cooked the food I would wash wrestlers backs carry their bags all that stuff um and then eventually after a few tours of being myself they put me in what is called the young lions cup and that's where their young boys go to graduate they do this tournament they crown a winner and then that whole class uh picks new characters and they start to grow and they become themselves you know um and that's when they said okay we're gonna give you this mask you're gonna do this um and yeah i mean it was it was a crazy experience because a lot happened in a few years like between 13 and 17 years old i was wrestling a lot i mean I wrestled in mexico San Francisco, Vegas, Phoenix, L.A., um, stuff like that, wherever I could drive to. Mm -hmm. So I cover most of that side of the country. Then, you know, New Japan, CMLL, Mexico, and then I came back, and then it was like Ring of Honor, PWG, TNA, uh, doing pay-per-views and TV for them. And I kind of had, and then I did some dark matches and stuff for WWE, like like single serving ones. So I kind of knocked all that out before I turned 21. Yeah, you've had quite a career up until just 21 and we're, we're just dipping our toes into the the long career that you've had so far only being 34 years old. And uh, t- <laughs> taking a couple of steps. It, it, it makes it makes doing uh podcast kind of a nightmare sometimes cuz we always run out of time. <laughs> no, we, we don't run <laughs> well, out we of have time. all the time in the world. I, I my wife knows I'm not going to be home for a while, so we can we can talk for 4 hours if we want to. I don't care. <laughs> So I want. Fantastic. We want to know everything. So and it, it's kind of unique because at 13 years old, I, I think back and I'm looking at at Dave yeah. as well. When we were 13, I like we're just getting into high school. Man. Like we're yeah. we're just getting into high school. I I can't even tell you what I wanted to be. I really didn't have a passion. I, I loved wrestling, but I, I didn't think I could ever be a wrestler. And go figure. I I became one quote unquote. Well, yeah. I guess you could say. But it, it was one match. We'll talk about that off the air. <laughs> But <laughs> well, if, you, if you've done it, you've done it, and that's all it takes, I think, to be you know part of the club. 
So. Oh yeah, and uh, I hey, congratulations, fat. Thank you. I'm a part of the club. <laughs> Yay! No, it was. Uh, I, I have had one match. Uh, I actually teamed with Abyss um, and went up against uh, Madman Fulton, who uh, was Sawyer Fulton from NXT, um, and the team of Better Than You, who is uh, Benjamin Bartholomew and JJ Deville, and another tag team partner on my team was Izzy Lambert. Um, so I had one match. I got chest chopped to hell, and uh, that was about it. Um, but Abyss did tag me into the ring, so that's one story I can tell my kids down the line. Like, uh, my old my old tag partner uh, did you a solid and got you in. I like it. Oh yeah, but you had mentioned how it, you've kind of gone around. You kind of got, I guess you could say, Heinz fifty seven. Uh, you went to New Japan. You went to Mexico, and this is all before the age of twenty one, where you kind of got these little sprinkles of all these different wrestling styles. And here you are. Any opportunity that you can get into a gym, you're jumping on that opportunity to just learn from anyone and broaden your horizons to make you more valuable to go into these other promotions. Now you had mentioned how you were in TNA and that I think where we'll kind of pick up from here. How, how did that experience kind of kind of take place? Because you, you were over in New Japan, you got a nice little flavor over there and actually were over there with some big names of today as well. How, how did TNA come into play? Let's see. Well, I went from Japan. They they shipped me to Mexico to, uh, to get some more experience and to be able to uh, work in a different place. It's usually what they'll do with their younger wrestlers. So they'll have them for a little bit, then they'll send them usually to Mexico or Europe. And so they can spend a few months or a year uh, just in a new place and, and grow a little bit more. And then uh, after that, I came back. And then I want to say the first first place that really called me was Ring of Honor. They're still at, the, I think, the end of their first year. They did a, a, a big joint show with All Japan, and, and they had me come on and, and do an opening match there. And I think it was, we so at that time, the way that wrestling was, and if you're a young wrestler, young wrestlers will ask me a lot, like what they should do or give them advice and, and how to progress. And I tell them usually, I, I couldn't tell you how to do it today because it's so different. In fact, I would hate to start today because... It was well. I mean, I guess it's the same act then because I didn't know what I was doing. But today, I, I wouldn't know what I would what to do because it's so different. But at the time, at that time, there were these tournaments that would take place every year around the U.S. Uh, they had like the Ted Petty Invitational. They had the Super Eight tournament. Um, you know, eventually they had like the the best of the best in CZW. I think they still do that one. Uh, there was the King of the Indies out west, and you could do these tournaments and places like Ring of Honor. Um, or TNA, stuff like that, even WWE, they would see these and they would kind of pick from the field. And that's kind of how guys would get their springboard from being just a local regional guy to really traveling. So I was already traveling a lot. So I kind of did it backwards. I went and got invited to do the Super 8 after I had traveled a lot. And they almost ruled me out because they told me that maybe I was too overexposed. But I was so young and, and I hadn't really done a lot of indies. So they were like, okay, it's fine to be in it. And it was after I'd done that tournament, uh, I think I went to the finals with Petey Williams and... Uh, Sometime around then is when TNA had called and they just said, you know, we know that you're available. You're back in the U.S. Would you be interested in coming in? And uh, did a, a TV taping for them. Then they did their first ever three-hour pay-per-view because they were just getting on the spike. And their programming was 
similar to WWE at this point where they do weekly TV and monthly pay-per-view and they, they uh, called me back for the pay-per-view and then the rest was history after that. I would just come in and out um, here and there when I wasn't in Japan or Mexico. And you definitely made a name for yourself there. That's kind of where you got your overall exposure. And you had mentioned how they didn't really want you into the tournament because of your exposure. How would they really know about your exposure? You, you had mentioned how like this was at the beginning of social media. Were you getting like exposure through like PWI magazine or were you like having videos like I don't think many things really went viral back then did no. they right right so I think what it was because at the time if you're wrestling uh, some wrestlers they, they'll joke about it still because uh, if you were around at that time um, uh, they'll joke about it and you'll see it sometimes with all the wrestlers they'll, they'll say like you know send a tape or something like that because at the time you'd have to kind of send like a promo shot and a tape and like a little resume to see if somebody is interested in, in, in using you. Nowadays, it's different. You could instant message somebody and, and send them a YouTube link or something like that. And people really know what's going on anyway before you could even tell them. But at the time, that's how you would do it. And I, I want to say they con- we got into contact, but when I, when I had showed them what I did, like I, I probably sent them a match from New Japan when they had asked, like, hey, can you just send us something? And I sent them that. Can you send us like a write-up? And I sent them a little bio. And they would just see the places I went and see the tape. And they're like, well, maybe this is not the right tournament for you because usually this tournament gets you to those places. You're going the opposite direction. But, so they actually skipped me. I was supposed to be in the 2004 one. And they said, no. And uh, then in 2005, they said, okay, we, we'll, we'll, we'll put you in this one. Because I think that time they started being a little bit more lenient about who they used because they, they used a number of TNA guys in the one that I was in. So I, I want to say that was probably the reason was they just started uh, bringing in bigger names for it. So they're like, okay, it doesn't matter. He's, he's fine. That is a little unusual that they would tell you that they're not going to use you because they want to get you to New Japan and Ring of Honor and places like that instead of just using that exposure, I, I guess you could say, like, as a draw because you look at well, some... It was kind of, I mean, it was kind of systematic at the time because they, that was like their most mode of, uh, of operation was to be like a springboard. Um, mm. It wasn't, I don't think that they were looking like to get rich off of producing this tournament. It was more just something that was self-sustainable and they liked having a good relationship as like a place where they kind of give the first exposure and kind of breed young talent. Like guys like Jeff Hardy did this tournament before people knew who Jeff Hardy was, mm. stuff like that. So they took a lot of pride in doing that for a lot of years, like before I was even wrestling. So I think that was really the reason why. This is not like how it is now, where like uh, an indie company will want to make as much money as you can. But at that time, since everything was still so regional, the idea wasn't really to build like a huge, huge business. It was more so just, you know, for them, that was their goal is to, uh, to just have this self-sustaining, like <laughs> proving ground every year. And then they had regular cards with their local guys, but that tournament was always meant to be like a springboard. Now, what kind of challenges did you find when you tried to go out to these promotions to essentially get bookings? Did you run into any type of hurdles or anything trying to get that exposure that you were looking for in the U.S.? Not really. I mean, at the time, I got really lucky during those years because uh, everybody treated me really well because of where I was coming from. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of weird because if there was a challenge, the challenge mostly came from my peers, not so much from like management in different places. People were happy to use me and they always treated me really well. Money was always really good, but 
peers would look at me kind of sideways because I had done a lot of stuff and been really lucky really young. Yes, I worked really hard, but, you know, they didn't know that. They just know that I had done a lot of stuff really young. And so some of these guys, you know, they were really talented. They would go on to this day. I mean, they're guys that you see in WWE and TNA or wherever the case is. And they would look at me like, like, fuck this guy. Like, like, what does he have that I don't have? Like, why, why haven't I done the stuff that he's done? And it was, it, it wasn't any reason for that. It was just happenstance, you know? Um, so I would get a lot of pushback from my peers because in these places, they were just local recent guys. So they would have to fight really hard for certain things and kind of eat each other, <laughs> trying to, you know, not be the last dog at the bowl. But I was always treated very well by like management and stuff like that, just because I did it backwards. I, I went really high, really fast, and then was doing other stuff from there. It seems a little weird that you would get so much pushback from your peers. Now, I understand the logic behind it. Like, why is it so easy for him? But in the short time that we've been talking to you, you don't come off as cocky or, or arrogant or anything like that, where it would be like, oh, I'm getting this opportunity. You're not because I work harder than you. And I, I just don't get that vibe. Like, why would these individuals? <laughs> well, I, th- I mean, what, when I was young, I mean, I still am this way now, but when I was younger, I was, I was required and kept to myself a lot so a lot of people just didn't understand me and then and I, I could still be this way too like they so sometimes they would kind of fire the first salvo and be like 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 what the fuck's so great about you so then I'd be like all right well I'll show you what's so fucking great about me <laughs> and I would kind of rub it in their face but I, I knew that I was really good but I didn't mean for them to be cross with me but once they did especially when I was younger I had I was really aggressive so Today, I can still be a little bit irritated by stuff like that, but I'm a lot more patient now. I, you know, I've gotten older. I'm not, <laughs> I just want to have fun, you know, but uh, when I was younger, I, I would take offense to that a little bit. So sometimes they, it, they would still kind of cause it, but I would definitely feed it if it got to that point. But I mean, a lot of it was just me being quiet. So people didn't know if I did have an attitude or not. So then they would fill in their own blanks and then from there, perception becomes reality and you know, that sort of thing. I've never felt the need to defend myself. So when they would create that narrative, that's just what it was. It seems like you kind of had like an invisible chip on your shoulder with these individuals where you were, like you would even mention, you, you were going backwards where you had gotten to this pinnacle that they wanted to be at. You've been doing this since you were 13 years old and the world's just kind of been handed to you. I understand like being quiet and kind of, I wouldn't say like a shy person, but you're, you're very much to yourself. A little more reserved. Yes. Uh, thank you. It seemed like you just let your, your wrestling do the talking for you. Like they're not just going to hand you something because no offense and excuse my term here. It's not like you were kissing their asses or anything like that. You were literally just doing your job. So I, I don't understand why there was so much pushback overall. Like you had mentioned that you just kind of let your your work and your mentality prove that. Yeah, pretty much where everyone started pushing back. You just said, essentially, hold my beer. Yeah. Watch this. You just had to throw that <laughs> reference out there. I kind of did. You always have to throw that out there. God, if I love I, that if reference. I drank, I might have said I might have still hold my beer if I drink. I, uh, I don't. The, the but theory behind it. He was 13. He couldn't do that. <laughs> the, 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 fine, the theory behind it. Hold my Coca-Cola. Believe me, the guys still tried. I mean, they, guys were dragging me into like strip clubs and stuff when I was only 14 years old. It's, oh, again, this was a wild west, man. The world wasn't the same place as it is now. Like, uh, ain't that uh, true. They would, pull, they would have, guys would have me in bars and clubs and all kinds of stuff. But, I mean, I mostly just kept to myself. So I, I, you know, again, like I said in the beginning, I, I grew up real fast because of stuff like that. Like I was living out of a suitcase and kind of living the life of like a 30-year-old dude. 
but you know, I was I was still a kid, so there's some stunting growth. But I mean, with with my peers, you know, there, I think a lot of it too is like I've never been a social butterfly in terms of wrestling community. At an early age, when I first started, like it was always told to me. Like at the time, they didn't have message boards; they had like newsletters and stuff like that, right? And um, older guys would be like, "This isn't for you. This is for fans. Like, don't don't read into this stuff." And so, I never took part in like the wrestling social community. I still don't to this day. Like, and I want to say like a lot of what fueled pushback from peers is that that sort of social community in wrestling still is the way that to this day, like it, they're echo chambers, you know, and they're little bubbles that people live in. They think it's the whole world and it's really not. And, um, and at the time that type of wrestling social community was being formed. So a lot of these guys who were my peers that were coming up and kind of scrapping really hard, they're really talented, but they were still trying to make it to wherever they felt like they needed to go. They were also trying to be kingpins of these wrestling social communities in their own personal echo chambers. And I think it kind of rubbed them the wrong way that I had a sense of security to myself that I didn't care. Like I didn't have any insecurity as far as how I was perceived, but they were always very particular about that as well as thinking that I must think highly of myself because of where I've been. And really, I just wanted to wrestle as much as I could. So I think sometimes, like, because I come across as I don't feel threatened, they feel like you should feel threatened. I don't know. It's, it's one of those things. It manifests in such weird ways, you know? Yeah, it's like people thinking that you're you're there to take their spot when all you want to do is just get an opportunity just like everyone else. You, you've had a little bit yeah, of and I'm Yeah, and I'm not worried about... Yeah, exactly. And I'm not worried about that sort of thing at all. I just want everybody to be able to work and have fun and all that. But I think they feel like, why isn't this guy feel competitive? He should, because we're all competing. And it's like, I just, that's not for me, man. I don't, this like, is, we're all it making was fun it together. For you. Yeah, it was fun for you. You yeah. knew what you needed to do. You went out there and you did it. You weren't cocky. You weren't arrogant. You let your wrestling speak for itself, like I've mentioned. And you're going to have people, like there, there's some people that we've probably met in our lives that are the nicest individuals on the planet. And we probably, at that first perception, were like, I hate him. It's weird to say, but like we all have that person where it's like everyone, like the room lights up when this person walks in. And you just kind of look at him. You're like, I don't like him. I don't know. There's something about him. <laughs> it's weird to say, Which but is like funny because I've never, I've never had that too. Like I've always felt like, man, I, I wish that I could be one of those people that light up a room and I usually don't. Um, but I think again, I do think like what you're saying, that's true. Like sometimes other people will see certain things. They get threatened for no reason. And then from there it snowballs and, and it's a mess when it doesn't have to be. Yeah. Like they see your resume and, and it, it just on paper, it intimidates them to the point where I, I don't like this guy. Like, he's here to take my spot. He thinks that he's better than us. And <laughs> yeah. But I, I do want to take some steps back because I feel like we would be doing our listeners a huge injustice if we didn't touch on a point that you made a few minutes ago. So you were 14 in Mexico getting dragged into strip clubs and bars. <laughs> I need to know at this point, what's your craziest story that you're willing to share at this point? Because at, at 14, I, I wasn't getting dragged anywhere uh, along the lines that you were. But here you are in, in clubs. <laughs> and nightclubs and strip clubs. I need the craziest story that you have from your Mexico days. I, I'm going to give you the floor. Uh, I need it right think. now. Well, let's see. At, at the younger ages, I don't know that I have a lot of crazy stories. I mean, it's, there's some typical stuff you would think, like, okay, uh, I'd spend the evening in, like, a Mexican strip club watching, like, midget boxing or something like that. But I didn't have anything crazy. Like, I would just kind of be a wallflower. Uh, you know, so I guess that in and of itself is a little crazy because I was, you know, 14, 15 years old or something like that. Um, I want to say, let's see, 
the, the wildest thing I could think of was a little bit later. I was maybe 16, 17. I think I was 17 because it was the, it was the New Japan guys, <laughs> the, the, some of the American wrestlers. They brought me to a strip club in Santa Monica. And again, I was, you know, obviously I was underage. And that was actually the first time I got a lap dance when I was 17. So, um, you know, whoever that was, thank you. Um, <laughs> probably, probably shouldn't have, probably shouldn't have done it, but thank you. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, it's, there's, there's been a lot when I, uh, that those are, those are really the, the more, I, I'm pretty subdued when I go out because I know how bad it can get if I, if, you know, if I act up. Yeah, I've been around guys, like I went out in, in Tokyo before and some of the guys, left with the stripper that they talked into quitting and then the stripper wanted to go on an all-night coke binge and then they were on this crazy uh adventure that seemed like one of the hangover movies for the next 24 hours and so we met up at marina airport to go home and so stuff like that happens but thankfully i've been able to avoid any like crazy stuff like that but i've i've been witness to quite a bit my God! <laughs> wow! Convinced her to quit, and then went on went on a hangover style party. Oh my God! I don't even want to ask yeah, her I names. Say it was, yeah, I want to say the reason was so uh, I went, and there was a group of us that were there. It was in Japan, and um, I was eighteen at this point, so it's not that big of a deal. But uh, one of the other gaijin wrestlers, an older one had bought lap dances for myself and another wrestler who's very much into saving the environment these days and is a prominent guy in WWE and I'm very good friends with him still to this day. But we took the opportunity to just have conversations with our strippers and ask ask them about, you know, if they have any religious beliefs or, you know, if they're interested in the environment or whatever and had a nice a uh, few minutes of them instead of taking <laughs> taking it up for what was what was meant to be, and then uh, a third friend of ours was the one that you know got into this weird group spat where the stripper quit a job but assumed that my friend had drugs and he does not do drugs so then took him all over Tokyo all night in search of said drugs and we didn't see him for another 24 hours until he described how insane his adventure was wow. oh my god oh my god just traveling around but that's, usually, <laughs> that, yeah, that's usually where you could find me it's somewhere in between with my friends and and I, 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 again, I don't drink or anything like that. I never have. So I usually am kind of just making light of whatever situation we're in. <laughs> you're, you're the, I've, never, I've never seen anything dangerous or reckless, but I've seen some stuff that's a little wacky. When you, when you put it on paper, it sounds wacky. But. <laughs> you're like the happy median between, like, instead of getting a lap dance, you try to save the environment and traveling around Tokyo looking for cocaine. Like, you're that happy median. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I'm I'm Mr. Magoo. It kind of I'm I'm along for the ride, but it tends to happen around me. Like I'm like the R2D2 of, of the crazy wrestling Star Wars universe. You know, like I I see it I see it all happen, and I've been around for every adventure, but I just I'm usually not the one in the battle. So.
So we're going to take a step away from our interview right now and give a shout out to our sponsor. If you haven't seen all across social media, we are now sponsored by LapelYeah.com. That's right. You heard it right. LapelYeah. If you don't know who they are, check them out. Go check out all their merchandise over at LapelYeah.com. They just had a huge Marty Squirrel pin release autographed as well. Sold out in 60 seconds. So tons of awesome merch there. Shirts, pins, stickers. Even if you are a superstar, you can send in a custom pin for them to release as well. They not only sell, but they also supply to all independent wrestlers as well. So head on over to LapelYeah.com. Be sure to use the promo code PINHEAD. You heard that right. If you watched Hellraisers growing up, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Once again, discount code PINHEAD at checkout. Get 20% off your entire order, courtesy of the Dark Match Podcast. Once again, that's LapelYeah.com. Once again, LapelYeah.com. And give me a lapel yeah. You need to write a book. (laughs) R2-D2 was the dirtiest one out of all of them. That's why he got bleeped out of the entire movie. (laughs) He he, he had a dirty mind. Great line. I love that. That's why he got bleeped out. He he had the dirtiest mind out of all of them. (laughs) Now, just kind of jumping forward. So you took some time. You were in New Japan Pro Wrestling, made some great friends with some environmental-friendly individuals, um, and made some great friends as well in in TNA and Impact Wrestling through all their name changes and PWG and Ring of Honor. And we can go on and on and on. But I do want to kind of fast forward to a particular event that you did take place in. And obviously, we're jumping in our time machine right now, and we're going towards the Cruiserweight Classic. Now, during which time the Cruiserweight Classic comes out, there was a lot of speculation on what necessarily it means. So I, I want to kind of get the behind the scenes from you. When you were approached regarding this particular tournament, how was it essentially, how was it kind of... How was it pitched to you? Thank you. <laughs> I had just gotten out of TNA, and I uh, wasn't sure what I was going to do yet, so I was doing... Uh, well, I didn't really want to just go back to the indie, so I was doing some stuff here and there, but I was really selective, and I was kind of going back to Mexico a little bit. I always seem to kind of go back to Mexico. It feels like home to me. I, I love the wrestling culture there, um, and I love the way the fans are there, and it, it's kind of like stuck in a time warp, and in a way, it's a, be- it's a beautiful time. I think there. And uh, so I always tend to drift back to there whenever I have freedom. And uh, I got a call uh, from from William Eagle one day. And I knew him a little bit in the past because he's kind of like the head of scouting for WWE. He does, he does a lot of it. And uh, he just he just asked me, he said, we're, we're putting together this, this tournament for cruiserweights and we'd, we'd like you to be part of it. And, uh, and I thought about I mean, I said, sure. And I kind of thought about it. At the time... I mean, it's, I guess it is this way now. Like, WWE really wasn't on my bucket list anymore at that time. Like, I had that, that ship had kind of sailed for me as far as my interests go. I didn't really care if I went there or not. So he had asked, and if it were any other thing, I may have just thought about it, and I didn't know what I would do. Because I would want to kind of go back to Japan, which underground, I kind of, I really, really wanted to be part of that project at the time when it was first starting out. Because um, I just had a personal interest in the way that they were doing content, I thought it was very extremely unique, and I always thought there should be a show like that. So I was so happy when they started. And uh, but I, I thought this is going to be this this is like going to be this year this generation's Jacob. Um, yeah. So I, I have to be a part of that. Like I, this, I can't pass up that opportunity because even if I don't stay in WWE, it doesn't matter. I don't care. Um, and when they first offered me a contract, I I told them I have other stuff that I kind of want to do, so I have to think about it. I don't really know. 
but um, but the tournament itself, I knew I had the foresight to see what it would mean like to history to, to generations to come. And I still think like, you know, 10, 20 years from now is really when you'll see how much that tournament means to this generation, because like when I grew up, it was the actual Jacob in 1994, 95. And then the WCW cruiserweights, you know, that sort of thing for me. Then when I was in the X division in, you know, 2004, five, six, like around then, Years later, I would meet fans that are like 23, 24 years old, and they'd tell me, like in 2012, they'd say, man, I grew up on the X Division. That's great. And to me, that was insane. But then I started to realize, okay, well, that's that generation's version of what the WCW Cruiserweights were to me when I was growing up. Yeah. So then I saw the Cruiserweight Classic, and I said, this is going to be the J-Cup for people. I know it. I could just feel it. So, you know, when he said, you know, would you want to do it? That's what I felt like I had to do, you know. Now, when it was originally pitched to you, was it, hey, we're bringing you on as a WWE talent to then go on for additional TVs? Or was it, hey, we're just bringing you on for this tournament? Was it potentially pitched to you that you were going to be a WWE superstar? Or was it just for the tournament itself? No, for nobody. It was, it was all just a tournament for everybody. Um, every single person, except for the guys that were already in NXT, you know, guys like Johnny, Tommaso, Rich, um, for everybody was just, hey, we have this tournament. Can you just do this tournament? And that's it. Um, they didn't even start negotiating with anybody until like the third round of the tournament. Wow. Because I remember they, they, they put us all in the theater in full sale, all of us, the entire field, and one by one pulled us aside to make their pitch. Um, that didn't happen until like the quarterfinals were over. But it was right after that taping of the quarterfinals that they, they brought everybody into, into the theater and started pitching longer-term plans. That's very unusual for WWE to not have everybody under contract to essentially bring in independent guys. Oh, it's unreal. Yeah. I, I won the title. I won the title without a contract. <laughs> No kidding. That's how unusual. That's how unusual it is. When I won the title and won the tournament, I didn't have a contract. So, I didn't have a contract until my first title defense at the pay per view. That was the, the first. That was my first. Uh, so you could have first match. You could have taken the title and Full on, yeah, full on Medusa. I could have. <laughs> yeah, like <laughs> I could have went Alundra Blaze, one hundred percent. Yeah, that CM Punk style. Wait for wait for them to give it the belt to somebody. Come back with the belt. With a contract and the belt, could have. Wow. Oh wow! I didn't even know that. Yeah, breaking yeah, news. No contract. <laughs> so I, going obviously, there was a lot uh, of talk about the cruiserweight classic. You go back and you look at some of these matches as well. One match that stands out, and obviously, no disrespect to you, the one match that kind of stands out in my head was Kota Ibushi versus Cedric Alexander, which, yeah, I, yeah. with the exception yeah. of you and Grand Matalik in the finals, I I think was one of the best matches of the tournament and it, it just goes yeah it felt like there was a lot at stake you know yeah and, and you saw guys I think that's really what the magic was yeah yeah there was and there was a lot of it and it, you were a part of uh, unfortunately some controversy because it, once the tournament was announced everyone kind of i guess you could say they quote unquote knew what the final was going to be and you were one of two individuals that 
took that away from him. Everyone going into the tournament was pretty much saying, oh, it's going to be Zack Sabre Jr. versus Kota Ibushi in the finals. And the first match happens, it's yourself versus Zack Sabre Jr. And you pick up the victory. Oh, me and Coda. Oh, Coda. Yeah, you're me right. And yeah, yeah, and then Grand Matsalik takes out Zack Sabre Jr. I asked I asked for Sabre in the finals, uh, but I asked for Sabre uh, during the first round because they pulled me aside uh, during the first round after my match with Mac, and they pulled me aside and they asked me, who do I want to wrestle in the finals? I said, I said, Zack or Metalik. And they said, we'll think about it. And then they came back later and they said, well, we're going to go with Metalik. They, they felt like it was a better story to tell. So I said, okay. But I knew I was going to the finals, like, from the beginning of the tournament because they asked me who I wanted to wrestle. So the, the Zach versus Coda match was never going to happen. Um, but they do that they do that sort of thing on purpose because they know that the fans are going to buy into it and that they're going to start fantasy booking it. And then from that, po- from that moment on, the fans, they're glued to it. So it doesn't matter if they get that match or not, that they could use that as a hook. Um, but that was actually, that was never the direction they were going to go. So you're speechless. I, I'm speechless because just going back to his statement <laughs> that he didn't have a contract until his first title defense, but they're booking him to win this tournament to be to win. Like, did you know that you were going to become the cruiserweight champion, or what? Did you find out in that exact moment when it was announced to everybody? Um, nobody knew that there was a title until literally uh, Hunter walked out with it. We all found out at that exact moment same as everybody else. I didn't know he was coming out. I thought the match was going to start. I was waiting for the bell and then his music came. And then time slowed down. It was funny. Like, <laughs> time slowed down because in my head I was like, oh man, is WWE really like how all the fans think it is? And they're totally just going to like screw Cruiserweight Wrestling and and, the, and what the fans want and Triple H is going to give everybody pedigrees right now and that's it. It was all one big joke. <laughs> but then he came out and he, you know, he threw it. <laughs> That's what I thought, like, time slowed down to, like, milliseconds, and I was like, oh, no, what do I do? And then, like, he came out, brought the title out, and it was this cool moment, and I was like, oh, that's really awesome. But I found out, like, everybody else. As far as the title, um, I knew I was winning it. I didn't I didn't ask or anything, because I hate doing that. I feel like that's tacky. Um, I hate asking any plans, but I knew that I was going to the finals because they asked me who I wanted to wrestle in the first round. They asked me who I wanted in the finals. So I knew I was going to go to the end. And I kind of knew by the way that they were talking to me and treating me that I was going to win it. I just didn't ask them. And then, you know, when they told me eventually, hey, you're going to you're gonna win, I, I wasn't, like, I wasn't surprised because of the way they were, they were treating me. But, because um, after every single match, I would get back through the curtain and Regal, Hunter, Shawn Michaels, Terry Taylor were all waiting for me, like right behind the curtain. And they would have this group powwow with me and talk to me and tell me what was good about the match, tell me, you know, just motivational things and stuff like that. And I was like, I kind of was thinking they were doing it for everybody. And they probably did it for some other guys because all the matches were killing it. The guys were so good in that tournament. Um, oh, yeah. But if I felt odd that they were being so hands-on because I never got that anywhere. Like, when I came back from New Japan, like, I would go back and, like, Liger was, like, high-fiving me behind the curtain or stuff like that. He was real nice to me. We would go have dinner or something after. But I wasn't, like coddled like that but there they were really like they were always waiting for me so i kind of had a feeling like like they might be going with me on this i guess but um but yeah they they asked me who i want to wrestle in the finals after zach um a good friends with zach and I, I wanted to do zach but um but i'm also friends with metal league and they they felt like that was a better story um yeah and i didn't have a contract uh in the finals when i was in, in fact i wasn't even gonna say that i told them i had another offer from Lucha underground so I kind of don't know why they really chose me. Um, and they were still negotiating with Zach and Coda even afterward because Coda 
kept coming back to NXT for some more stuff after the tournament. Um, we even tagged together in, a, in the tag tournament after the Cruiserweight Classic was over. So, I mean, they, they still had a chance to go with those guys if they wanted, but, you know, they just they told the story that they wanted to tell. If I was in your shoes, and I know that's a terrible way to start it off, but like if I'm walking out <laughs> with a title and I don't have a contract, it's like, okay, well, <laughs> I'm the new Cruiserweight champion. I have the championship, but you have no say over me because I haven't signed anything. I would have just come back, like, and I'm not in that moment. I'm sure you're on cloud nine, like, here you are, like, after everything is said and done, and here you are on a national stage of WWE Network on a very widely talked about Cruiserweight Classic, and you just won the tournament. I, I'm sure that wasn't really on your mind, but obviously, I I would have been asking, like, okay, well, what's the long term here? Are you just handing me this as, like, a like greatest Royal Rumble winner like, like hey, that, hey, attaboy, great job. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like am I just going to put this up on my mantle and like, or is this going to be something? So what was it eventually like when they told you, hey, well, the Cruiserweight, you're coming to Monday Night Raw and we're now going to have the Cruiserweight division on Monday Night Raw? Well, the, the thing is they told us that that night before the show started uh, for the semifinals and finals. Um, they told us that in the locker room in like a, a big meeting. But the way that they do things there, they don't work in absolutes. Like, like they don't... Uh, like, let's say they're negotiating with a wrestler, right? They don't ever say, okay, we're going to offer you this for this amount of years, and we're going to make you champion. They never do that. They always say, I could see you in this position or there's an opportunity for maybe you three to be in this position or not. Like, that's what they do. Um, so even when they had that meeting before the show, they said, like, we'd also like to let you guys know we're going to make the Cruiserweight division an official part of Raw. And then that's it. That's that just a blanket statement. They didn't say, like, like these are the guys that are going. They, they just said, we're going to have Cruiserweight. So they, they, as much as they can, they leave everything vague and sort of in the dark because they don't want to make promises, you know, that they have to change later because that's just the nature of the business. It's, it's, it's always changing, so you never know. Mm. If it's always changing as well, if they, let's just say, for example, if they came out and said, hey, these are the individuals that are, are coming with us, you could potentially put yourself into a bidding war. And I think that's what they were trying to avoid by doing that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, like, look, even the announcements that they made, like, I'm still waiting for Tommaso and Johnny to join the Cruiserweight division. They, <laughs> they were supposed to be part of the, the lead lineup, you know, and those guys are so freaking amazing. Like, it, maybe it would have been totally different if uh, we had a few more guys like that to start out with but they try to avoid being painted into certain corners um and but i mean with me i guess like i understand uh you're right about as far as like being in my shoes and not having a contract and being in that situation but i mean they're also really really gracious i mean in my case like i mean they they, they gave me they offered me like two raises before i ever signed a contract i think i got the highest amount of anybody and they definitely like expressed to me the like urgency and, and the the intent to really have me on board. So I didn't really have a reason to, to run in a circle or anything like that. And Regal gave me great advice. He just said, you know, like you've been doing this almost 20 years now. It's kind of, it's probably about time you, you relax a little bit and settle down in one spot and for a few years and make some good money and not, not just be like running around to different projects all the time because that's what I would always do when I was younger. Before I was done in a place, I'd move on to the next place. It's just how it was. I was always hungry and trying to do something new. So mm -hmm. it just felt right. But you wanted more experience and you even showcase that when you first started. Anywhere where you can get into yeah. a gym, you wanted to go to. You want that exposure. I mean, I'm... I'm 
and even now I'm still that way like when we uh, I was one of the few guys that didn't have to report to NXT but uh, I would for the first I mean gosh until even recently like when I was finished like I would some, I would divert my travel sometimes after after TV and instead of going to the West Coast I would go to Orlando just so I could go to the PC and sit with uh, Terry Taylor or Shawn Michaels and we'd just sit down I'd get mentorship from them and they would just you know they would just lecture me for a few hours just talking about wrestling, talking about life, just giving advice just because I was hungry for that. I didn't have to do it, but I don't, I just, I always feel like there's always something to learn from somebody, you know, and if you're not trying to do that, then you're not trying to grow. Yeah. It, it's like the Baskin Robbins. Like there's 31 ways that you can put in a wrist lock. Does everyone do it the same? No. You can learn different things from different people. And going back to y- your earlier days, you go down to Mexico, then uh, you get the Japanese flavor. Then you get the Ring of Honor flavor. Uh, you get the T. And, and there's all these different styles, all these different tactics that you're going into just being in the ring with all these different people. And no one works a match the same way. No one has the same ring psychology. And you're going out of your way when, let's face it, you're you're traveling. And instead of going home, here you are sitting in an office picking the brain of Terry Taylor and Shawn Michaels instead of going to Vegas or, well, you live there, so that would just be going home. But in <laughs> Instead of, yeah. like, going to, like, the Philippines and going to, like, Putacana or whatever, insert anything here. You're venturing towards more knowledge. So taking a couple... But I think more than anything, like, the older I got, the more I realized that it's not really about a vertical ascension. Like, everybody thinks that way. Like, I got to get to the next place. And to them, that's a higher rung on the ladder. And then, you know, they do that. And then, like, you get to, like, WWE and it's like, well, I want to get from this show to this show. Like, I want to get off NXT. I want to get on SmackDown. I want to get off 205 I want to get on raw and to them that's like um, they think of that as like a promotion like that's a step up but it's really not like everything you do it's all lateral movement because at the end of the day this is the most important piece of advice i've ever been given and it's an old saying in wrestling it's been around forever the only thing that's real is the money in the mile and like you can make without wwe the same amount of money that your friends are making there and you can make in tna the same amount of money that some other guys are making in Ring of Honor or AEW, wherever you are, like you can have as much fun as you want, make as much money as you want. Because like you said, everybody's different. Every single person is different. The way you do your job is different. The way you set up your business is different. And if you're getting what you want out of it, then that totally justifies how hard or how not hard you work for it. Um, so I think in that reason, same thing as like we were saying before about like, competing with my peers early on they look at me as a competition or like a threat but i always just felt like guys we're all different like there's an infinite amount of spots just find what your thing is and do you doesn't matter everybody else can succeed simultaneously we're not we don't it's not a pyramid it's it's a wide open field just find your own patch of grass and do what you do the older i get the more i find that that's why i'm always so hungry to learn because at a certain point, I stopped being able to get advice from people. Like, I would always think, like, when I was younger, I asked for advice. Ask questions, ask questions, because you're going to get new things every time. And you do. But it started to get to the point where, like, I was in locker rooms with, like, the Jerichos of the world and, like, all these, you know, with Shawn Michaels and all these people. And sometimes they didn't have an answer for my questions. And then I was like, like, I'm starting to have shared experiences with these guys that even they're still learning because I'm doing some of the same stuff that they're doing. And then at that point, it made me realize, well, I could learn just as much from a brand new rookie on the indies as I could as some of these veterans. Like, so I ask questions for everybody. 
I just asked somebody today <laughs> to meet me in the gym tomorrow to, to, to train with me. And he's a, he's a local wrestler, and he's still trying to get experience himself. But I know I'll learn something from him. But it's all lateral movement. You know, it's not vertical. It's not not like that. It's kind of like playing for, like, different teams. Yeah. Like, you have all these different promotions, and, like, you can play for one team, learn something. You go to another team with a different coach or whatever, you'll learn something new from them. Yeah. It's it's all of that. It's You can get the same experience. You can do the same thing, you know. But it, it, even going out and kind of venturing for it, too. Yeah. And it, you're right. You're not all trying to climb a pyramid. It's not, oh, well, we need to get to the top. This is it. And th- this is the ultimate end goal is, like you even mentioned, going from 205 Live to Raw, uh, going from NXT to SmackDown, where all these people think, like, oh, no, that's the ultimate end goal. Like, no, you want to learn something new every single day. Right. Like, it, it's great to have goals, but at the same point, that's not the ultimate end goal. Like, if, if you get on Raw, are you ultimately satisfied? No. What's next? Winning a title. Or learn, or and just having, what? or just having a and great match. You have the title. Are you done? No. Go for the go for the other title yeah, you and, don't have. And other yeah. and other people's success or failures have nothing to do with you. And that's what I think a lot of people don't realize. It's yeah. Like, and especially fan, fans, like fans, kind of projected on a lot of the guys too, and, and they kind of make guys feel pressure that's not fair. Like because we kind of live in a clickbait clout based world now you know where it's all like bragging rights of what have you done lately and that sort of thing but the reality is like somebody else's success or failure or whatever spot there and has no bearing on you like or what you define as success like if you're not having fun if you're not making money and taking care of your family in the way that you want then it doesn't matter where you are it's not successful so mm-hmm. it just the older i get the more i see how much of a wide open landscape it is it's not about climbing it's about traveling mm. it's just about traveling yeah and Traveling and getting that knowledge, too, yeah. Now, a couple of steps back. Going from the cruiserweight division of Monday Night Raw to 205 Live to where you're now your own brand and you have your own show, you guys did get quite a few facelifts. Uh, At first, the first storyline that actually came out, I I loved it and and wish that they would do more things like it. The first storyline that you particularly had was with one of your trainers in Brian Kendrick. And I thought that was a great storyline. It was a great story to be told. But then it looked as though 205 Live was getting away from that, where they weren't really telling the stories anymore. And then they brought in Neville that kind of rejuvenized the Cruiserweight division. Then, yeah, yeah, (laughs) they brought in someone else. And yeah, that's all I'm... That, that's and, and literally, then it, the and then it just seemed to kind of, I don't know, tank. <laughs> it just took a nose. I don't think, but and I, I would, I, you know what? I think this is a great topic huh. because you say that it tanked. I say that it hit a peak. But let's get TJ's side of this. So, what? In my opinion, I tuned in more to 205 Live when a certain Enzo was on there because I wanted to see him get his ass kicked. And that's why. And I think that's why a lot of fans drew towards it because they wanted to see him get his ass kicked. So going from there, I'm going to leave the the topic to TJ. When Enzo kind of came in and took over the division, I've heard from multiple different people that work on the inside and you know what? You're an open book, so I'm just going to come out and ask. I've heard from a lot of people that he truly is an asshole. Like, through and through, his character is exactly him. And I, I just well, want to kind of know, when this idea was portrayed, like, hey, Enzo is going to come over, he's going to get the Cruiserweight Championship, he's going to shit on all of you and call you whatever he wants, and we're going to give him an open mic, and he's going to be the top star of 205 Live, and uh, on the what, what whatever it was, 25th anniversary of Raw, he's going to have the most segments, even though it never came to fruition for other reasons. 
Parsons, but w- what was the whole dynamic like when it was introduced? As Dave would say, it, it tanked. As I say, it, it hit a peak. Um, well, let's see. Well, okay, one, side note, I want to go back to this because I never have a chance to correct this. I always feel like I should because it gets frustrating sometimes when people ask me all these questions about Brian. Uh, Brian was actually never my trainer. I started wrestling before Brian, but we were uh, part, not partners, but like we, uh, we rode in the car together a lot. So a lot of the stories we told during that storyline were true, but they, the WWE took it a step further and, and made it, painted him as like my coach, but he was never actually my trainer. Um, we just worked together a lot. And that's um, why so you don't believe everything you read on the internet. <laughs> if everybody's asking me uh, why, uh, or not, not why, uh, if anybody who asks me questions about Brian as like a coach or whatever, I don't have a fucking clue because <laughs> we trained together, <laughs> but he was never my coach. I actually started wrestling before him, but, uh, but he's a great guy. And as far as I've seen, he actually is a, a fantastic trainer with the guys he's brought up because he's, he's worked with a lot and he's probably going to be a trainer for WWE someday. Uh, if not very soon, like he, he's really amazing at that, but Aside from that, so yeah, we had a lot of facelifts, and I feel like there's three different generations that came up. Uh, I mean, initially we had like a musical chairs generation, it's usually what I call it, because, you know, I came in when me and Brian had a deal, and then it was like me, Brian, and Rich, and we were kind of playing musical chairs on top, but we were kind of alternating in that top spot, and then there was a tier right underneath us where it was like you had Cedric, Jack, um, let's see, like Ali, maybe. Tony and then knees, it, was, it was cool. Gulak, yeah. Yes, because yeah, and then you had yeah, and then maybe you had like a third tier that was like maybe like Tony, like Noam, and all these guys. But it always felt interesting because, in my opinion, at that time, it felt like anybody could beat anybody. And if you were on the second or third tier, a lot of people were like, "Man, I can't wait till they get up into that tier because what's going to happen then?" So I felt like that was always really exciting, and uh, this will kind of get into a little bit of like match card science in a little bit uh but go for I'll get it to that in a second um after that you know we had neville and we adore neville he's i mean i did anyway he's he's always fun to be in the ring with one of the few guys i, I really wholeheartedly trust uh not necessarily safety issue but like uh i trust his mind and i trust uh, his timing like he he's a solid professional so like I always had a lot of fun working with him. And then after that, obviously, it was like the Enzo generation. So those were like the three transitions that we had. Um, from the inside looking out, and this is where I'll get into like match card and science a little bit. From the inside looking out, um, what it seems like is we had the most viewership and influence the first generation. Because up until the last, like Royal Rumble access that I did, every time we had meet and greets or something, there were people that still thought I was a champion. Like that's how their grasp on the Cruiserweight division was. Like I would have hundreds of people in these access lines and they either thought I was still the champion or they thought that that was still the top tier. It was like me, Rich, Ryan. They're like, man, I love what you guys do. And I'm like, dude, you guys have missed a lot. <laughs> if that's what you guys are thinking. Like, um, and... So the thing is, is, and I sort of feel like, and it sucks because I love Neville, but like, I think the Goldberg run is what kind of killed the interest in the division because when you're, and this is where Max Card Science comes into play. When you typically are going to debut a guy, let's say it's like Elias or something like that. He's going to come in, he's going to work with, I don't know, Jericho, right? And so he's going to come out, make an impact by himself, have, have his own spotlight. He's going to work off of a guy who has all this equity with wrestling fans and he's probably going to beat him. And then, and then there you go. You've made a star. That's typical. But what they did with us, you had a dozen guys at the, the WWE universe has never seen. So we all have to, and we're being segregated from every other character. 
So we can only work with each other. We don't have a popular guy to work off of. Um, so we're all building equity together. So every day is a really slow ongoing first impression you know what i'm saying like the first 10 times they see us on tv it's like a first impression every time because we don't leave a lasting memory as much as guys who are going to wrestle and debut against Shawn michaels or whoever you know because yeah. that's a big moment jericho debuting against the rock in the promo duel a huge moment uh if you don't know shit about jericho you know he's big shit when he's out talking the rock for a minute you know what i'm saying like that's a big deal yeah but when you, you got two guys just doing it with each other you don't know either one of them it's like it takes a long time for people to understand what you're about so when we transitioned to like neville and then it was like the goldberg run in my opinion i wish we would have had neville but not put the title on him right away because everybody lining up to lose to him now we all just look like a worthless and that becomes everybody's first impression and then in the end, at best, everybody just wants Neville to go to Raw and be that version of Neville because fans, they're like gluttons, you know, like they think a good thing lasts forever. So they don't see the end of it. Like they just think, oh, then he can go to Raw and he's going to tear up everybody there. But then what? Like he's probably not going to do that. But even if he did, then what happened? Like nobody thinks ahead, but that's just what they want because that's what they've been trained to see. So people started tuning out when Neville wasn't on screen because it was like, oh, well, if he's on screen, who cares? These other guys are losers. Um, so by the time Enzo came in, it was kind of dead in the water anyway. Uh, and I was told, because I would ask every week, when Enzo came in, we were hitting all-time lows every single night. Like, people didn't tune out uh, any more than that period of time. And I don't know that it's because of them or because of Enzo. Um, it was during the Enzo period is when it kind of drops the most. And I don't, I don't think it's necessarily because of him. It just might be because it was so dead at that time. But I just think that in the beginning, people were interested because it was new and they were willing to give it a chance because every night it was kind of unpredictable. I would win, I would lose, Brian would win, Brian would lose, Rich would win, Rich would lose. We'd have a three-way, we'd have four ways, we had tag matches. And it just felt unpredictable. But at a certain point, we stopped growing together because, you know, it, it all got angled towards one guy. So I just think when you're trying to build 12 unknowns, you can't build them around one single note. Like, it doesn't hurt a guy. Like, Raw 1993 is a great example of, like, what our show is. Slightly oversized roster for an hour show. But at that time, because you have guys of equity, it doesn't hurt Sean to lose to Lex Luger. It doesn't hurt Lex Luger to lose to Brett. It's okay to build around Bret Hart because everybody means something. But we didn't mean anything yet. So to build us around one guy killed it and i think that was what the problem was yeah and they're trying to build an established character that everyone's already familiar with instead of taking the time to invest in the talent that they already have there and bringing that talent up so you bring in like you mentioned you bring in neville who's already a known character and everyone's getting their asses kicked to him and then you bring in enzo and they do the same exact thing so you you're have not building anyone you're, you're not building anyone at all because you're just showing that oh well this division is somewhere where our stars that unfortunately aren't being utilized on uh, on the raw side, you come in here and they're just going to dominate everyone, and no one's going to do a thing about it. When they, yeah, and, really and I think at so the yeah the product of that they ended up building two guys only. So then what happens? Like they have to wrestle each other, but then one of them left because he <laughs> he knows that other than that one guy he's going to wrestle, everybody else is dead in the water. So who else is he going to work with? Nobody. So it, it creates, uh, no, there's no future for that, you know? Yeah, it, it, it's not. Because you, you can look at the cruiserweights all you want. And I, I personally, I love the cruiserweights. I, I followed the career of a large majority, including yourself, a, a large majority of the individuals that are in the cruiserweight division on 205 Live. And there's some individuals that are there now that, in no disrespect, I'm watching them just literally just waste away raw 
talent more than anything. And, and there's, uh, I can go down the line and, and name as many people as I want, but I think we're all on the same page that it's not the show that we originally thought it would be. And the, the product is definitely nowhere where it should be w- with the way that they're doing it right now. And uh, I, I just got to say, Mike Bennett, Mike Bennett, or you can call him Mike Canellis if you want to. It, I, I still refuse yeah. to do that, but M- Mike Bennett... <laughs> Look at this character of where he was on Independence, and now he is in much better shape than he's ever been in. Right. What are they doing with him? Nothing. And it's upsetting. But they're they're doing the same thing with a bunch of other people too. But I digress. You know the thing. The thing is too. Uh, in in Mike's case, and you're totally right. And he's he's excellent. And I feel. I loved working with him in Ring of Honor. That's when I first met him. TJ Perkins so said I was right. Him again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I'm so ha- I'm so happy to have caught up with him in WWE, and we got to work together a lot um, in in one of the last stories that I did before I left, uh, and that was a lot of fun. But like my in this situation, what you think sucks for him, and it does kind of suck, but like that's actually them doing their best to cater to Mike, because otherwise he could be sitting on the bench with a lot of other guys who are sitting on the bench and are also fantastic. That's the crazy thing, and really the dynamic is that there's just too many players to take the field, and there's not enough games, if that makes any sense. like uh, That's 100%. really what they're faced with. They, they have, there's too many players on the roster for the amount of games and positions available. and that, So the fact that he's even playing at all is, is actually like a credit to what they think of him because they want they want to give him playing time, you know. Um, and, and that's just yeah, the thing. Right. Again, like it, it's hard for fans to understand that because, like you know, they I don't think they take into account like like program. Like there's really like literally like you, you can't like nobody everybody can't play the game. That there's yeah. two players. Uh, yeah, and, and the cruiserweight division is, is also the same way. I mean, it's a 45 minute show, and uh, I really feel like we lost a lot when we sh- we got rid of like a lot of the stories that we were telling. I, I thought I get that some of it's goofy, sure, and it's not for everybody, but man, that's an opportunity for you to at least have 30 seconds on the show to do something, and it gives people an idea of who you are. You know, like I think a lot of people found out more about who Jack Gallagher is in an exploding box skit than watching him do hammerlocks for 12 minutes. You know what I'm saying? Like, he gets just as much out of one as he would the other. And everybody across the board would because they all have characters. Everybody has something. But when we got rid of that and it was only about wrestling, now you only see guys once every two, three weeks. And that, that's tough. Mm-hmm. And it goes back to that story. It, it, just to throw out an example, like Noam Dar with Alicia Fox. It, just giving them that right, added yeah. personality, giving you a reason to either love someone or hate them. Now it's just two individuals coming out. Why don't you like him? Uh, I I don't know. He, he just, I don't like his abs or, or whatever it may be. But they're not giving you an opportunity of why you should hate this person or why this match means something. And, and they're really depriving right, yeah. the WWE universe of that. And, and I, I do have to agree with you. Yes, it, and Mike Bennett or Mike Canellis, whatever you want to call him, it, in his case, yes, it, it is better than essentially Essentially nothing, but they really need to bring back the kingdom and bring that to 205 Live. Yeah, no, I. They need to introduce the kingdom. (laughs) Oh, man. They need to bring that back. And obviously, with the kingdom, congratulations to the rest of the kingdom, Matt Taven as well. So, can't can't congratulate him enough. Yeah, no. And, uh, what with, uh, MSG recently and everything for them and for him, like, and he's, he's, uh, 
he's done a lot and he's come a long way and I'm really happy for him too. Oh yeah, everybody involved in that show. Huge congratulations. So you had alluded to it previously and obviously we have a lot of questions from all of our listeners that want to kind of know what necessarily happened. So you receive your release, so whether you requested it or whatnot, you can, just like we we learned a little bit ago, you can't believe everything you read on the internet. Not everything's gospel. <laughs> it is fake news. But it, tell us a little bit about what led up to your release from WWE and uh, essentially your departure. Um, so let's see. I guess you'd have to rewind back uh, a year ago. A year ago in February, this would be two. 2018, I guess. 18, yeah. So a year ago, we had uh, London TV tapings, uh, like around this time of year, like before or after Mania, something like that. And I, I knocked on Vince's door. I, I talked to Vince a lot from the time I started to, to the end. He's easy to talk to. People are mostly scared of the door, is really what it is. Um, and, uh, and I was, you know, I would ask him what he wants and he would give me advice. He'd tell me when I'm giving him something he wants. He'd tell me what he needs out of me and stuff like that. He'd ask me how my help was. He's actually really, he's very much a father figure like you hear in some interviews with like, you know, superstars and stuff. He's very much like that. Um, and he's a normal dude. He likes football, listens to ACDC, that sort of thing. Um, so I met with him in February and I, I, I told him, I said, I feel like as I am now, I'm, 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 I'm worthless to you. I'm just a moves guy on a moves show, and you have a ton of move guys on every show. Apollo Crews is a move guy, and you can't even get him enough matches. And he's not even scratched the surface of what he can offer you. He's so talented, <laughs> and you don't even see it yet. So I told him, as I am, I'm just the same as every other guy, and you have a killer roster. But when I was worth something to you was when I was presented, you know, as like a global superstar and, uh, you know, for Asian Americans and for Filipinos and stuff like that. When I came out of the Cruiserweight Classic, when I was doing the Hunter there and stuff like that, that was huge. Like fans latched onto that. I mean, like my socials grew to like half a million. To this day, I don't even think any of the Cruiserweights have caught up to me. Um, and that's not to say like I'm special, but that's what the power of that connection was. But as soon as we got to Raw, we got away from that. I said, I want to be that. That's what I can offer you that nobody else can. That's what my value should be to you. And I would like to get back to that. Um, and he, uh, he said, okay, well, do you have any ideas how we can use you better? And I said, I'll show you. So we left it at that. And I spent the year making my own... Uh, like appearances i started scheduling my own stuff doing red carpets at uh awards galas and stuff like filipino centric events and kind of reforming my connection to the community uh I trained with manny pacquiao and just did a lot of interviews and things like that and uh got a uh, you know programming companies and stuff on board that wanted to help with tv distribution in asia and use me as a way to advertise to asian america or southeast asians and stuff like that just just what i should have been doing the whole time um, came back and uh, around the fall, this was like around Survivor Series, met with Vince again, said, okay, gave him a folder. This is this is what we talked about. You asked me how you can use him better. I said, I'd show you. This is it. He looked through it. He said, great. This is amazing. Uh, thank you for thinking this, <laughs> like putting this much work and thought into it. Most people don't do that. 99% of the roster doesn't think like that. And he said, let's find a way to do it. We need to get you on a bigger platform. You know, network shows for like the Philippines, China, stuff like that. It, it's hard to sell the network to them because they're barely getting like Raw SmackDown right now. So he's like, we need to get you on a show. So we were thinking Raw. So start with creative. I said, okay. 
So I said, start writing some pitches. We'll write some pitches. We'll put it together, see what we come up with. So I started writing, and I wrote for everybody. I wrote stories for me against everybody on every single show, every spot on the card, up and down. Every single person. You name it, I wrote it. Me and Elias, me and Jinder, me and Finn, me and Lashley, me and Roman, me and Dean, me and Miz, everybody. Um, would pitch it to creative. Creative wouldn't always send it to Vince. Uh, in fact, they started using a lot of my stories with other people, which was frustrating. Uh, I would meet with Vince. He'd ask me for pitches. So I started getting them directly. He'd review it. And really, ultimately, what it came down to is just that uh, they uh, he just didn't see anything that uh, that fit and what would uh, what would work. And then they just decided that they were going to take your ideas and make them their own. <laughs> well, I mean, what ended up happening was just that uh, of the stuff I turned in, he didn't see... He likes what I wanted to do, and he wanted to figure out how to make it work. But in the way that he approaches things is that the business model was solid, but like the horse that drives that carriage is going to be creative. So he wanted to think of a storyline. So that's why he was like, give me some pitches. We'll think of pitches. We'll see what we come up with. And I would work with some of the writers and stuff like that and try to come up with stuff. But they just didn't seem to like, the writers didn't think that certain things were solid. Uh, it, I don't know. I guess they ended up using the ideas anyway, so maybe the idea was solid, but it wasn't good for me. Uh, and Vince didn't know where he could fit me in to what his plans are. And to his point, he does have way too many guys to juggle right now. So ultimately, he just said, look, we don't know what to do with this, but you know, I don't want to waste your time, and I don't want you to have to sit back on the bench, and I have a lot of respect for what you're trying to do, so maybe you should go spread your wings, do it, and you know, maybe in the future we'll figure out something else. So... That's really what it came down to. And it's good to know that you kind of both left on uh, on good terms. Good terms and left it open, yeah. open for future possibilities. Yeah, because, I mean, it's, as far as I know, you know, <laughs> if, uh, if there was bad terms, it wasn't told to me. But that's really where, you know, it all came about. And, like, I had already kind of thought about leaving on my own. I talked to some of my, you know, friends and stuff on the road that, you know, maybe I should quit and do some other stuff instead. Because I had a lot of opportunities I wanted to do that I couldn't do there. Like, sponsorships and things would come up. I would ask for permission to do it. They would say no, because they have their own stuff and it would interfere. And I would say, well, you're not using me for your sponsors, so can I, you know, can you make an exception and say no? And then I'd say, okay, well, I have to leave that on the table then. And then um, there's more wrestling stuff that I'm doing that I wanted to do before that I didn't really have time to do. Like, there's a TV show I'm gonna, I want to shoot soon, uh, a horror movie short that I'm writing that I'm hoping to get produced into a longer form uh, one. Um, you know, a lot of the traveling and stuff I'm doing is for, like, influencer work and sponsors and stuff like that. And I just wasn't able to do that there. So it just felt like the right thing to do. Yeah, and it just kind of give you your freedom back to where uh, you, I believe you had brought it up before we even started recording, where previously you, you missed so much just traveling for, for raw or 205 live that you kind of missed out on life and here you are here's your freedom back to if you want this weekend to work you can if you don't want to work you don't have to so it just kind of gives you that freedom to do everything that you just mentioned as well go over and build awareness in the philippines you can write a screenplay you can go produce a tv show be on a tv show Geez, you can be sponsored by anybody you want to at this point. I think there's a strip club in Santa Monica that is looking for sponsorships that caters to 17-year-olds. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Had to bring that up. So, but one thing that... But yeah, uh, but I I, uh, I definitely wasn't fired over tattoos, if that was your question. <laughs> <laughs> but I, 
obviously with this free time, one of the things that it does help you do is focus on one of your passions. And I would be remiss if I didn't bring it up. For those individuals that don't follow you, you are a pretty avid gamer that yeah yeah pretty avid yeah but at the same point you you see these videos all over the, obviously you have up up down down which let, let's face it no one can really touch up up down down they hold the guinness book world records for the largest platform for video games right now but oh yeah like blows it away for sure oh yeah but you've been posting recently. It looks like you're you're into Fortnite right now. But uh, what are some games that you find yourself in your free time kind of playing and uh, kind of gravitating towards? It? Even the ones that you go back to, because I, I can think of some like with every single. You, I see your wheels D- turn into different consoles. That oh you just yeah, jump different back consoles. To. Like if you were, let's just say, if you had, let, let's premise this question first before we get into it. Let's go through the consoles really quick and just Spitfire. If you can think of your your top game and. I'll I'll, I'm going to involve you too. I'm, I'm going to put you on the spot. We're going to make you look like a weirdo. Yep. But all right. <laughs> so we'll go through. So starting off, I'll start with you, Dave, and then I'll go to TJ. Uh-huh. So all right, favorite game on the original Nintendo? Tecmo Super Bowl. TJ. Uh, Mega Man Two. Ooh. Well, that was well, that was his whole his, kind of his entrance and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, that was actually uh, that was that, going to be that was that, actually that was, that's, that's a that was a foundational one. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so that was going to be something that I was very curious about is. Was that was that the whole thing that you know you're such a big gamer that you wanted kind of essentially your persona when you came up to be like your entrance to be like video game related? Because I I love well, your entrance when you came in. Oh yeah. So it it, uh, it I back uh, before I got to WWE, I had wanted to. Well, I said to myself, if I have to be in a commercialized type show, which, I mean, WWE and maybe, like, TNA were the only places that would produce this sort of content. Like, Ring of Honor was a little bit more free-flowing, you could be a little bit more natural, but if I was in a more commercialized environment, I always said to myself, and, you know, I was suicide for so many years in TNA, so I didn't have to even think about it. Ironically, suicide is itself a video game character. But, um, when, at that time, I said to myself, you know, if I ever did characterize myself I want to make something that's kind of like Scott Pilgrim, you know, like an all-encompassing, like, video game and anime style thing as far as art style and aesthetic. So I said, okay, like, that, Ready Player One, that sort of thing. And uh, it was during the middle of the Cruiserweight tournament. <laughs> I was actually, like, not down, but I was like, man, everybody's, like, turning really off, and I'm happy to be part of this thing, and, you know, I'll do whatever they end up telling me to do, and then, then I'll kind of bounce. And I was sitting with a buddy of mine, Drew Gulak. We were watching the rest of the matches uh, one of the nights from the theater in full sale and uh, he was like dude uh, I think he thought I needed a confidence this he's like you move so smoothly in the ring it's like you make everything look perfect you're like it's like watching a video game play it's like if we were all a video game you would be the character I want to play the most because you look so like cool the way you do like moves and stuff and uh and that's really like what my creative pitch came down to was that like for years I always got criticism. I even did the whole time I was at WWE. Vince would always pull me aside and say, "You need to dirty some stuff up because you look too clean, too perfect. Like you need to make some stuff look harder." And I was like, "Okay," but like I picked the character I did because I said, "Look, my my biggest weakness for everybody everywhere I go is that I make things look too easy." So you know what? Fuck it. That's going to be my character. Is that I? That, that's why it looks that way because that's the way I do things. So I created i tried to create that video living video game character type thing the problem is i didn't want to go into like gamer lingo and all that type of crap it's just (laughs) our creative team uh at nxt and at 
the main roster stuff is completely separate, 100%. It's like different countries, like they're worlds apart. One of them understood me, but Raw, SmackDown, those guys, they didn't. So when they would write for me, they'd be like, this is what he would do, right? This is what he would say. And I would tell them, guys, no, this is not what I would say. Just let it be just the entrance and the music and the aesthetic and let me handle the talking. But they would always try to force it. That's why the early promos were so like rigid and weird because they just they felt like it was supposed to be that. But I didn't want it to be like a 15-year-old streamer as a character, like a Twitch streamer. I just wanted to be a living video game character. So I didn't want to like say stuff like noob or pause or whatever like crap like that and, owned you know. <laughs> Poon. pwned yeah. my favorite yeah. term ever so that that a little insight into how that character came about that's that's why that was the way it was but yes i i, I basically told them mega man marvel versus capcom uh, super mario like create the imagery from that and that's how they got the power bar the music and the little power-ups things on the on the ramp i loved it I, I, I was all for it. Mine was Duck Hunt. <laughs> oh, I'm, you can't go wrong with Duck Hunt. Well, like, we were at my <laughs> uncle's house, and he had, like, one of those, like, projector TVs. Well, it yeah. would be, like, uh, like it was, like, damn near his entire wall. So you'd play it, and literally it just felt like you were out, like, hunting, like, all day. So we <laughs> awesome. would we'd play that thing like crazy. So Duck Hunt was always my go-to. What about Sega? Never really played Sega. You suck. Yeah. TJ? Uh, let's see. Um, I mean, for Sega-specific console stuff, uh, I, I loved uh, Sonic 2 and Sonic and & Knuckles, uh, but I also played a lot of NBA Live on Sega. I remember being glued to NBA Live during those years. NBA Jam. See, Oh, man, NBA Jam 2. Actually, it's funny. Uh, Lindsay and I were two of... He's, one of, he's probably my best friend uh, in WWE. Him and Cedric, my writing buddies. And Lindsay... Uh, came up with a his crossbody. He goes between the legs like a dunk and calls it the NBA Jam crossbody because we're big fans of NBA Jam. Oh, I love NBA Jam. How could you not think <laughs> yeah. of that right now? Because I never really played. Because I never <laughs> played, really played Sega. Okay, Super Nintendo. Super Nintendo. Super Mario Three. Ooh. Hey, hey turn. I gotta go home and game right now. <laughs> Getting an itch right here. I still have like five or six consoles, give or take. All right. <laughs> What about uh, Mario World? Is Mario World is mine for Super Nintendo? Oh. That's actually my favorite game of all time. That's true because because that's the one they introduced Yoshi. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. And they had the oh they had the traveling menu system, and he had the super cape. And yes. Guys, I love that one. Oh, I think I may need to change my answer. Oh my god, mine. They had oh. all the Easter eggs. You could change the colors of the map at a certain point. The secret road, all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It's, that, it's a great game. That the different Yoshis. See that and the Ken Griff- uh the couple Ken Griffey games I think are up there. I, I was oh like, yeah, for sure. First first Griffey was great. Uh, that is presents Major League Baseball. I think was the first one that came out. Yeah, where they had the it was like very ho- they had like gimmick names like yeah. the presidents and yes yeah. yeah that one was really good. Yeah, you already stole my my answer. I like Earthbound as well. Um, <sighs> Never heard of that one. That that's a good one. Earthbound. I don't think I've heard of that one. Oh. Yeah, it, it was a Japanese game called Mother. Two and in the U.S. was called Earthbound, and it's it's uh, Alex Shelley's favorite game. He's the one that turned me on to it. Uh, but yeah, it's a great game. I'm, I'm gonna have to venture into that one. I don't yeah. know. I'm probably gonna end up bankrupting my household tonight by stopping <laughs> and gra- like grabbing like all these different games. Um, we'll end it with this one. My favorite gaming console still to this day, Nintendo 64. Yes, I haven't played it in a while, but TJ, um, I. 
I probably have to go with Goldeneye. I know it's an original, but like I always end up coming back to that. I got really into the South Park shooter that came out too, but just because it, I don't know, maybe just because my <laughs> we had a lot of fun playing the multiplayer. But <laughs> oh, my God. Um, but Goldeneye, oh, I that for hours I could play that. See, I'm. I'm, I'm See when it gets on the spot here. When it gets into when it gets into N sixty four, I started really just Madden. Wow, how I just dude, I'm it just is. But I lo- I loved like those football games. I think the one baseball game was like oh All Star Baseball like ninety nine, I think that or something like that. Mine was WCW NWO Revenge. I oh, literally great game. I could not get pulled off of that game like no, like the world would stop playing that game and oh uh, no i already just thought of a different one for n64 i try to do i try to do little quirks from that game in, in matches just to see what would happen like i'll irish whip a guy and leapfrog way too close to the ropes to see if they go through them <laughs> <laughs> my fit i i have to ask i i asked sunny kiss this when when he was on i gotta ask when you played and i've never asked this to you either so i'm gonna ask mm-hmm. you so when you played Revenge, what characters did you play as? Start Ooh, with you. I, I think I, I, I probably always did either uh, DDP or Jericho. I was always Raven or... Raven was a good one. Raven and Conan were my go-tos. What about yourself? Conan's so great. I yeah, love Conan. Oh, man. Can, can I change games? <laughs> I've, I, ne- I never actually played that one. Are you kidding? My <laughs> God. Dave. Dave. I dude, I was getting David. Re- I started also getting into NFL Blitz. A great game, but we're great. talking about Revenge right now. I never played it. <laughs> Bro, That's you so just crazy because like oh, Revenge gets so much love because uh, like it was such an upgrade from World Tour, and it was yes. so long of a gap before WrestleMania came out. So like. For a lot of people, Revenge was the pinnacle, like because that's all they had for years. Was like this was the best one. Yeah, they had like what was it like war, like WWF Warzone where like yeah or something An attitude like, yeah yeah like it was something it, it was just absolutely garbage and then you got Revenge which was absolutely mind blowing and I think the follow up from WWE was No Mercy which was also a fantastic game WrestleMania two thousand yeah then I think, no Mercy. yeah I think WrestleMania and 2000 actually came out uh, Rich Swan and I we preferred to, uh, WrestleMania two thousand to no, to no mercy i think because like the lighting and some of the production is different in it like the camera angles are a little different and the lighting is a little bit i, I want to say darker uh, i don't know why but we both were like i remember telling him one day we were on the road he, he was part of the, the, the writing group before he left wwe and, and we would be checking in the hotel and i'd be like i know that this is crazy but i like wrestlemania 2000 better than no mercy and he was like me too and we couldn't figure out why but i think it's the lighting my god i i i need to go home now <laughs> like I, I'm, I, I'm not a fan of yours right now. I love you too, Pat. <laughs> I, I, no, there are two things that you have, two things in life, and I've known you since kindergarten. Yes, since sir. That, that's we're talking right now, like 25 years of friendship. You've yeah. never played revenge, nope. and we've been friends since kindergarten. Yep. And you've never seen Shawshank Redemption, one of my favorite movies of all time. True. God. That's crazy. Are you an American? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, TJ. I en- I engorged myself with Forrest I- Gump. Hey, don't you dare. <laughs> I'm not, but I'm just saying. Like <laughs> and expanded. and and sports. Forrest Gump and sports. <laughs> That's it. That's your life now. Hey. Shut up. You need to go home. Hey, I will, I will say this. I will say this. One of my golden rules in life is you can't trust a man who doesn't like sports. So And 
See, uh, that, that explains uh, my I, brother-in-law. I, I live and die by that. Like as my pri- like every rule comes after that. Uh, but that's first. I, I can't trust a man that don't like sports. All right. But, so t- yeah, see, TJ and I crazy. are best friends now. Yes. <laughs> you are. But he he's also going to har- narc on you all the time for not seeing Shawshank Redemption. Yeah, I, can't, I don't know if I can abide by somebody who's picked up a controller but has never played Revenge. That's insane to me. <sighs> exactly. That's There's... like saying you've driven a car but you've never stopped at a stoplight before. That's crazy. <laughs> My God. Oh, I, I am so getting grateful. roasted. I am so roasted. grateful for this interview right now because <laughs> I've been saying it for 20 years. But I didn't know about Revenge <laughs> until today. I was uh. today years old when I found that <laughs> shit out. <laughs> God damn, what have you been doing with your life, man? Oh, man. I spent $40 on a revenge pin because I wanted it. And you haven't even played the game. You're dead to me. I'm doing this interview alone. Good luck. I, you, you can listen. It's fine. You Thanks. can listen. I'm turning off your microphone. I'm just kidding. You can still talk, but you have a task before you come back on the show next week. Yeah. Two right. tasks. Two tasks. One involves playing. The other involves watching. <laughs> but so we, we've talked about some of our favorite games from those consoles. What games are you kind of into now, other than Fortnite? Or are you kind of just well, in? Uh, let's see. I mean, I so I, I I play a lot of Fortnite now, but that's really only because of uh, like logistic reasons. Like, um, I mean, the art style's cool, I guess, as far as all the battle royale style games. Like some of the more like super realistic ones or like futuristic ones, I can't. It's hard for me to get into. Um, I know a lot of people are on Apex and stuff like that, but for me, that game just feels like it has no soul. Like I, I don't know why I can't get into it. It's not as fun. Uh, I like the cartoony, like non-serious aesthetic of Fortnite, but I really only really play because it's easy for all of my friends to get on. Some of them are on like PC, some are on different uh, consoles. So at least I always know we could always party up on that game because it's cross-platform. Uh, otherwise, I play a lot of Overwatch still. Um, Overwatch League keeps, keeps me pretty invested in it. So <laughs> so I'm, I'm always roped into Overwatch. But I mean, I like a lot of the other stuff that's come out recently too. Like Resident Evil 2, the original is one of my favorite games of all time. Um, so they just did the remake. I love that. Uh, Fire Pro, I play all the time. Um, I still make the WWE video game. I can't escape the company somehow. Uh, <laughs> I leave it and I'm still making it. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, so a lot of my friends play that. I play I play all the sports games too. I, I get everyone every year, even if I don't play it a whole lot. It's, it's like a staple of what I do. Uh, so I'll get MLB, the show, you know, oh, get NBA 2K. Yeah, I'm all NHL, in on the show right now. NHL's like, the NHL franchise is one of my favorites ever um so uh yeah that's a lot that i play and i have a switch as well so i'll play like whatever anything mario automatically i always get i'm probably gonna get a mario tattoo soon just yeah anything mario uh, i'll always play um mega man 11 uh, have that so yeah i mean i get a little bit of everything do you hear about like the i want to say it was like a business mogul or like a a millionaire billionaire something along those lines I, i saw this story this guy is interested in renting out this island and doing a real life battle royale from Fortnite. Oh, really? Like with like I don't know if it's laser tag or if he's going to do like paintball or he really just wants to kill people and he's <laughs> going to put people on an island just to kill each other. But Hunger Games style. He, he wants to do like a real life like battle royale and he wants to fund it and like 
literally get like a TV deal for it. Is everyone going to like parachute in? I don't know. I think it's just like a fun way for the Hunger Games to like eventually evolve from it. Oh, God. Like it's just like, oh, like you're going to volunteer as tribute. Like I'm the greatest player ever. But I it's like people that play Guitar Hero and think like they can be in a rock band. And then it's like, oh, I don't know how to play guitar at all. Like, I don't get it. But all right, I gotta, I gotta ask him. What have, have you gotten into the show yet for this year? ML, uh, MLB the have show. I gotten, oh no, I actually haven't downloaded that one yet. It, it came out when I was, I think, overseas in Asia, so I, I, I'm a little behind on some of my cube. Okay, it's only, it's only been out about a month, so I'm, I'm already. You, I'm you've already had, in tw- it. you've had. 30 years to watch Shawshank Redemption and you're giving him shit over a month I'm just asking a question. <laughs> you're jumping uh, down his throat for a month that the game has been hey, out? Hey, Pat, read between the lines that I'm giving you You don't right need now. to make me read between the lines because you're just giving <laughs> you know, me the finger in to, itself. To, to his to his credit, that's you. The show is usually a day one pickup for me, so I am I am quite late. This as was far the, as getting the into it, so. this was the first one I had ever pre ordered, so I I was all in for it because I had just recently finally upgraded to a PS4, so it's like, needed this game, needed to get into it. Oh, my God. Oh, I love it. I, I just remember stopping by your house. You're like, bro, it's like the top of the seventh. Like, I can't do anything right now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, we had to leave, and you're like, bro, it's the top of the seventh. Like, I, can't I, can't, I can't leave yet. <laughs> like, we had, like, a show to get to. <laughs> Like, it was like the world just stopped because the game's not over yet. So I had to circle around our city. Like, okay, I, hey, I'm going to take my hey, time I, getting to your house. Hey, once it got to the top of the eighth, I'm like, okay, I'll pause it and let's go. Yeah, he, he like, comes out to the car and he's like, yeah, I pause it. Like, I'm just going to come back to the game. Like, I, I'm up right now. So no big deal. Yeah. I, I, No, I need, like, a gaming console. That's one thing that I'm lacking right now. I don't have any. But, like, I would invest in it. But the problem is, like, I know, like, let's say, for example. Your kids will take it. Well, no, they're not going to take it. They're going to break it. Like, they're just literally going to break it. That's true. They're not at that age where they can respect it. Like, we have to hide their iPads because, literally, they just get chucked down the stairs. They don't care. Maybe I can just do that. Like, I can just play games on, like, the iPad. Like, I'll just steal one of their iPads and I'll just start playing games on it. I don't know. There you go. That's what I'll do. Wow. You know, my first four... My first Fortnite win solo was actually on my cell phone. What? <laughs> yeah. Oh, I my. played it so many times on Switch and PlayStation 4, and I could never finish a game. I, I always, you know, top five maybe or whatever, get close, but I could never I could never get over the hump. And first time I played it on my iPhone, first game, literally the first game I booted up on my iPhone when, when it they made it into a mobile version. I won, and I couldn't believe it because it is so frustratingly hard to play on it. But somehow I won. I, I was so upset by the fact that he just admitted that, like he he won it on his cell phone. I had to hit the microphone with my headset. Yeah, great job, Pat. It was an accident. <laughs> Calm down. It was an accident. So uh, it is. It's so hard. To, I I think the only reason I I won is because uh, it, it might have been before they opened up cross platforming for it. So everybody else was also playing on their phone. So it must have been just anarchy. But like, yeah, I, that's that's the first time I won. After that, I, I even to this day I can only really win in squad. It's really hard for me to win in solo. Yeah, I've I've never played Fortnite. 
Yeah, I've, I've played like other, <laughs> I played like other ones kind of like that, and I'm just terrible at them. I, I'm really good at talking shit during like Call of Duty. <laughs> like I cannot play Call of Duty, but I am the best shit talker that there is. So like my buddies, I'd go over to like my buddy's house when he's playing it, and he would just literally just hand me the headset and be like, "Talk shit, talk like, shit, we'll play." Yeah, it's like so I'm like sitting over there like cutting promos like on people, and he's literally just dominating everybody, like looking like a stud, and uh, I'm making it seem like it's me because like I can talk a big game but yet i'm backing it up at the same point too <laughs> when you hand me the controller like that is not happening but <laughs> it makes an efficient combo because you know you, you can you can talk shit at a clip that is way quicker and sharper than somebody who would be playing at the same time because you don't gotta hold the controller the other guy's just gotta do his thing that's true oh no he was laughing like there was one <laughs> point where he's like dude you gotta you gotta turn it down <laughs> Like he he was laughing as I was saying it, like some of the things that I, I was coming up with. I I don't even remember some of them. The only one that I remember is like he he was always known to uh, he he was a uh, what's the term that they use? He he was like a poster. He'd post up somewhere and just sit. Yeah, and that's it. Well, oh, a camper, a, yeah. a camper. Thank you. And yeah. he he would just camp out and like just take people out like with a snipe, like with a sniper or. Um, like he would never really move around and then he finally did and he realized how terrible he actually was at the game and like we would literally just take out other campers while camping ourselves like we knew where the best spots were in every like every level so we knew the best hiding spots and he would just go right to it it, it was god awful that's how that's how it was on the first uh well not the first first one on playstation but the first one on playstation 4 the first battlefronts that came out just like a few years ago uh, um, I played it, me and my friends played it so much that I knew every map front and back. So I could camp in a lot of places. I was kind of lazy, but I would also catch, I knew where to catch other people who were trying to camp. So I could set up traps and stuff. I was pretty, I was, it, I'd probably be a really annoying guy to play against on that game. <laughs> yeah, probably. Uh, we know we've kept you here a while, but there's one thing I just want to circle back to that you had brought up. You said you have other projects that you were getting into you said there's a tv show you're trying to get going and a horror short can you tell us anything about those um well there's not much to tell but there's a, a tv show concept i mean it, it's really um it, it would be of niche interest i think because it's really just a, a travel show that i would uh i would be going to these different countries and it's all international stuff um, so I'd be going to these different countries and I would try like a local food or a local custom, visit a local haunted place. I wanted it to be just a local haunted show, like to, but not, not here, like in other countries where I would go to various places that were like famous for like, like folklore and stuff like that. Um, but we kind of expanded the concept a little bit. And so we're trying to see about maybe starting to shoot it soon, but we're just putting together some of the, some of the additional stuff. We have like the first, like, sample season of it kind of written out what we want to do and destinations we would go um and then uh the horror movie short is actually a concept i wrote when i was like 19 or 20 um i had a coach a wrestling coach that uh wrote uh screenplays and stuff that he would try to get produced on his free time he, he had a background in writing and he told me it's, it's good practice just to get into writing so when i was younger i wrote a couple different movie concepts i let him go i did most of them in my wrestling notebook but uh a producer that i'm working with uh, actually for the TV show, had been asking me if I was interested in producing some stuff. And I, I thought about it, and I never really put serious, like, thought about it in the past. And he said, well, if you have any concepts, I said, I do. So uh, I, there's one horror movie concept that I have, just the concept for it, and he said that, you know, we'd try to start with a short 
and see if we can get it produced in longer form. We have a studio picked out and everything, so just trying to write it out a little bit more and kind of get back to the round table and see where we want to go with it. So just uh, just a couple little things. Now, are these th- are these things that, especially like the TV show, is, has anybody kind of been kicking around that they would want to pick it up, or do you have any idea where we may eventually see this, or are you getting like this? Oh, the, b- both both uh, are already attached to to a network, but. I'll, I'll wait and see if we can get everything off the ground first. I don't want to tell everybody to check something out that, like, I don't know if it'll be yeah, there or not. Right. But, uh, but yeah, but yeah, they're both attached to network. We're just waiting to see if we get the green light to begin. So. And if you're looking for places to record, like, and you're looking for scary places, there's actually this place in Ohio. It's not at Mansfield. Uh, it's the old uh, Mansfield Reformatory. There's actually this really good movie that was actually filmed there. Uh, Shut it was up, called Pat. Shawshank Redemption. <laughs> And it's the <laughs> it's the most haunted prison in from what I've heard it's the most haunted prison in America. Um, and it also had this great movie that won an Academy Award that was filmed from there too. Pat, I hate you, but shut up. <laughs> but, yeah, but yes, I've heard that too. Yes, so go home and watch Call it. Shot. Called Shawshank, yeah. <laughs> it's called Shawshank. So we don't want to take too much of your time. Obviously, we appreciate every minute that you've been on this call with us. So we do have a couple more questions. So obviously, you have these projects that you want to get off the ground that are in the beginning stages and hopefully get picked up soon. But what is next for TJ Perkins? I see, obviously, you have a couple bookings coming up, but what do you kind of have on your radar? What's what's next in essentially your goals that you want to accomplish? You know, I don't know. It's funny because I haven't had freedom like this in God, like ten years. Uh, before WWE, I was, in, you know, I was there for the last three years. I was in TNA for three or four years before that. I was in Ring of Honor a couple of years before that, and then I shot a couple seasons of this uh, show called Lucha Libre USA, which is a Lucha show on MTV for like I think they only had like three or four seasons. But not since like 2011 have I had freedom. So uh, wrestling itself, for one, has changed a lot in that time. So I'm kind of like learning what the landscape is all over again. Um, I'm certainly falling in love with wrestling all over again, which is something that I didn't think I needed or didn't think I would until now, and it's crazy. Um, So for the most part, I'd like to not land for a little while because I kind of want to have fun and, and do this stuff and, 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 you know, maintain some of that freedom to do some of these other things I want to do. Um, I do have a lot that's scheduled, but I'm trying to get a new website up. And I know that sounds so played out because websites are played the fuck out. But I did need a place to keep, like, tour dates and things like that so people can, you know, if they're trying to find me, they can see it. So once I have that up, uh, which will also be attached to, like, a merchandise shop and stuff that I'm going to do on my own, I don't really want to keep everything on wrestling keys and stuff like that. But uh, once I have a schedule up, I'll be able to, like, put everything up. I have, like, 55 dates between now and, like, September. Like, 55 different appearances. Wow. Uh, last I counted. Um, here, England, Australia, Europe, you know, Japan, everywhere. So I've only been able to kind of post the first you and I'm, you know, I'm still in, in my 90 days, so I can't really start traveling anyway. But, <laughs> but, uh, so people have only been able to see the first few that I've been able to put like on social media. But once I'm able to post my schedule, um, people will be able to see. Um, and I might just put out a list of cities so people can get a head start on seeing, like, just, you know, that's near you. Then, you know, pretty soon I'll announce where I'll be as far as that goes. But yeah, I have like 50 some appearances just over the summer alone as far as wrestling goes. And I have, you know, a bunch of non wrestling projects that I'm, you know, working on, and, uh, but yeah, I mean, I don't know what the, 
what the future holds exactly, but uh, for the first time in my life, I don't have to set a bucket list and I can just kind of have fun. So I'm just looking forward to that. You have your life back, like we alluded to earlier. Like, if you don't want to work this weekend, you don't have to. No one's telling you that you need to be at this appearance. If you don't want to work, you don't have to. So you can sit at home and play Fortnite or WCW <laughs> NWO well, Revenge. Yeah, it's a quiet little game that came out one time that everybody <laughs> except Dave may or may not know about. <laughs> uh, everyone everyone but Dave. <sighs> I, I'm Thanks, still guys. flabbergasted by that comment that you made. Thanks, how guys. Have you, how, <laughs> it, you need to, like, inter- if you ever meet TJ in real life, you need yeah. to walk up to him and be like, I'm the guy that's never played WCW Revenge. Maybe by, no, by that point I will. <laughs> but he, he doesn't know that. Like, are you going to call him on that's, the side? Are that's you gonna, true. Like, you're just going to reach out to him like, hey, I played Revenge We'll, we'll just, night. we'll reach out to him through, through the show, social media and say, hey. No, I'm going to post a video. <laughs> I'm going to post a video. I'm going to post a video of you playing. I owe Kelly Klein a, a video of me eating a snickerdoodle. Oh, yeah, so That same day. We will post a video of you playing. That's what we're Revenge. gonna do. That's what we're gonna do. We're just gonna congregate at my place. We're gonna play that game with a, with a box of Snickerdoodles, and then we'll call it a day. That sounds like a plan. And then we're gonna watch uh, Shawshank Redemption. <laughs> <laughs> so if you want to follow along and find out everywhere where TJ is gonna be, you can find him on Instagram and on Twitter at Mega TJP as well. Anything else you want to plug here today, TJ? Uh, no, for now that's that's it. Uh, I'm uh, I'm not a terribly social guy not really big on social media i only got those two but you can find me on there and anything important that comes up uh you know you, you'll definitely find out through there but i appreciate anybody who uh you know wants to follow me and anybody who has been i'm grateful because without you guys you know there's there's no me and you know i i uh i do it for for everybody and i hope that i'm you know helping everybody in a positive way and even if it's a negative way thank you for following me for that too as long as i'm making a day I, i'm happy to be the butt of your joke as well <laughs> <laughs> well you can also support him by heading over to pro wrestling tees slash tjp pick yourself up some official tjp merch as well so david you have your tasks yes we're gonna have to make sure that we keep tj in the loop after you accomplish those tasks but uh, tj we truly appreciate your time here today hopefully it wasn't too much uh of a headache and, because no, I, ha- no, I have yeah, one right now yeah it was a it was a pleasure i uh i normally hate talking about myself and telling a lot of new stories and i'm so much happy happier to have been able to just talk video games and movies and whatever the fuck came up you guys are fantastic thank you for having me well we really appreciate it tj thank you so much tj perkins ladies and gentlemen So the fact that he nonchalantly admitted that he went to a strip club at the age of 17 with a particular wrestler that is very well in touch with the environment. I think we're both still kind of speechless. I am. (laughs) I really am. Like you and I both looked at each other and like our eyes were like, no no disrespect to TJ, but it was like we were seeing boobs for the first time. Like Like, we're, I think... It took us a minute to pick our jaws up off the floor. Dude. Yes, I completely agree. <laughs> Holy so, crap. Oh, my God. Like, what an interview. interview. But I, I, there's so many things that I would love to touch on. But, I mean, uh, let's just give some huge congratulations going out this past weekend at ASWA Spring Sting. Huge congratulations going out to our former guest, Robbie Collins, who reclaimed his ASWA Universal Championship, the title he never lost. He had to vacate due to injury. 
injury. So huge congratulations going out to Robbie Collins. Also another big congratulations going out to a buddy of mine, Titus Dynamite, who made his debut at that event and came out with the victory. So congratulations to Titus as well. Another big congratulations going out in his first title defense to Chase Winters, retaining the Real Shoot Wrestling Heritage Championship. And the list goes on and on and on. But unlike this, our stories and what we could talk about right now, we're not going to go on and on. But that's just going to do it for this week's episode. We hope you all enjoyed everything about that interview as much as we did. Dave, you do have a task. If I didn't harp on it enough during that oh, interview. shut up, Pat. Uh, well, <laughs> TJ's on our side, too. So yeah, he's telling you that you need to get your yet together, too. But that's going to do it for this week's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. We will hear back from you guys soon we want to hear all across social media how you guys felt about the interview everything whether it's positive whether it's negative we don't care we just like to hear it because it makes us better but you can follow us on instagram facebook and twitter you know where to find us you know the taglines but thank you once again have a great night boom